podcast this week, we have a lovely old natter with the father and son stars of Made in Italy, Liam Neeson and Michael Richardson, while we also ask John Lee Hancock all about the little things in life and the little things, which is the name of his new movie. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast, it is also getting its very own Snyder Cut. Now, we're not going to be four hours long because, quite frankly, that's not much of a difference. But we will have slow motion bits every now and then. But just like Garth Marenghi, we're going to try, where possible, to keep it away from the bits where we're talking. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week I'm joined, delighted to be joined, by not one, not two, but three colleagues of such lethal cunning, our geek queen... Helen O'Hara. Hello. Disney Dean, Ben Travis. Hello there. And great big fucking nerd, <laughs> James Dyer. <sighs> Hello, Chris. Hello, James. <laughs> How are you? You're worse than Steppenwolf. <laughs> <laughs> the band or the cre- or the creation? I mean, either. Either, yeah. both. <laughs> Can you name a single Steppenwolf tune? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about trying to make one up and then thought, no, I'm just going to be honest. No, Chris, I can't. I thought that would have been up your alley. Yeah. I beg your pardon? Not like in a sex way. Oh, of course not. Isn't Born to be Wild a Steppenwolf track? I don't fucking know. Get your motor running. I believe it is. Mm. Is it? Not just because I Googled I it, but also that. I can't imagine singing out in the film in either the Whedon or the Snyder iterations, if I've got to be like, honest with you. hey, Lordy Mama. To be fair, Steppenwolf <laughs> does have a massive axe, so he is an axe man, and therefore... Probably could front a band. Yes, he could. There's also a Steppenwolf song, though, called Jupiter's Child. So Jupiter's the Roman name for Zeus, right? So that's about Wonder Woman. (gasps) It all comes together. It It all fits. It all fits. But listen, happy Snyder Cut Day, everybody. We're recording this on Thursday, the 18th of March. One day after celebrating St. Patrick's Day, Helen and I obviously were mega drunk Ugh, yesterday. Mega drunk. As, mega, as lifelong mega drunk. teetotalers, you know, yeah. we just, we make yeah. an exception for St. Patrick's Day and just yeah. drink green beer all day. Filled the Thames with it and then drank it dry. And then just for lols, just for shits and giggles, I put all the snakes back into Ireland. So, oh, sorry about that, That's where they came from. Shit. Yeah. Jesus Christ, there's a fucking black man by my bedroom. <laughs> Anywho, enough of this tomfoolery. Um, Yes, it is indeed Snyder Cut Day. We will be talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League later on in the reviews section. uh, I have my big old glass of Zack Snyder's Snack Cider ready to rock and roll and talk about that one. It's going to be a lot of fun. But first, we're going to start off with the eagerly anticipated, even more eagerly anticipated, I think, than the Snyder Cut of Justice League Every single week, it is the three-fact structure, the segment of the show in which my three colleagues of such lethal cunning are tasked with coming up with an arcane, unusual, or obscure movie fact, and then trying to impress me with it, and I give a point to the winner. Now, Ben, just before we started recording, said he doesn't have a fact. Frankly, when he has had a fact, it really hasn't helped him. But Ben, I'm going to put you on the spot. Come up with a fact. Now, go. (laughs) Thankfully, I've just remembered... If you guys cast your minds to the classic Disney animated film, Bambi, you remember the one about the deer? <laughs> I don't right, think we've done this right. one before. Oh Look, my God. I heard it on your podcast and I thought that's a great fact for the, for the podcast. And I obviously forgot why I thought that. Do you so know where I. you first heard it though? <laughs> yeah. You first heard it on the Empire podcast. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's why it obviously made that connection in my head, immediately thought, great mm-hmm. fact for the podcast, just uh-huh. didn't put the extra step in, in my mental process. The extra step in Wolf. Hey. Oh, 
There we Who's go. Who's afraid of the Steppenwolf? 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 Basically, the whole Justice League is... Yeah, they're all really scared of him. Oh, spoilers. They're terrified. Okay, no, I do have something. Also, shout out, Disney University podcast. Go look it up. Facts about Bambi and more. <laughs> Having done a very hasty IMDb search, did you know that even back in the theatrical cut of Justice League, there are scenes mm-hmm. early on involving Aquaman and some local villagers, which required Jason Momoa to speak Icelandic, which is one of the most notoriously difficult languages to speak. Apparently, mm-hmm. the just linguistic rules are crazy. There are like 20 different tenses and endings for things. This is the man who mastered Dothraki. Bear that in mind. I mean, come on. What do you mean, mastered Dothraki? Isn't that like a... That's just a made-up language. Yeah, you can still learn it. All languages are made up, Chris. It is a language. (laughs) Like, they did did develop rules for it. It Yeah, in the same way that that, uh, they did with Klingon. A lot of great big fucking nerves (laughs) sat down in a room and worked out an entire syntax for Dothraki. And Navi. I think it was the same guy as the guy who did Navi, actually. Then they've got 57 different words for horse. Anyway, Anyway. uh, Jason Momoa had to speak Icelandic, but he was not great at speaking Icelandic. So even when the film was released in Iceland, they put subtitles for his <laughs> Icelandic speaking, uh, which apparently made a lot of people laugh in Icelandic cinemas. So Was he not just reeling off Sigur Ross lyrics, do you think? <laughs> he could have been. He could have been. Bit of John C., bit of Bjork, you know? <laughs> yeah. did, did you guys all see the, the video from the mayor of Husavik? So the, the, the town that was featured in Eurovision... Uh, Song of Ice and Fire, or whatever it was called. <laughs> Story um, of Fire Saga. Story of Fire Saga. <laughs> the, the Oscar-nominated Eurovision <laughs> Song Cast. Yeah, Jesus, li- literally, Jesus that's what I'm getting to. So when it was Oscar-nominated, the mayor basically uh-huh. released a video encouraging people to vote for Husavik. Uh, and it's the most adorable thing you've ever seen. I think it's on my timeline somewhere if you search back until about Monday. Yeah, I'm surprised that uh, Aquaman can speak Icelandic because he's a really good geezer. Wow. Mm. That's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Put one of the slow motion bits in now. <laughs> yeah. Is that your fact, Ben? Is that is that, that your was fact? it? Just that, that was Jason Momoa, like the rest of us, is not great at speaking Icelandic. Tight ninety. This is good. Yeah. Boom. Tight next. ninety. Tight ninety. For this section. Yeah, because James is next. Here we go. Here we go. He's going to take a run up. He's actually got out of his chair. He's gone into the living room. (laughs) (laughs) Much much like the flash, I'm building up ahead of steam so that I can electrocute all of you. Um, (laughs) Oh, please enter a misery. Halfway through one of your facts. At the exact point where you go, but none of these things is my fact. That's when uh, the sweet release of death would be a a mercy at that point. Okay, so, so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking that this is the episode we are discussing the the Snyder Cut. Now, the Snyder Cut is literally double the length of the theatrical cut. So, to be thematically consistent, I believe that my fact today should be double <laughs> no, the length we don't have time. of my longest fact thus far. However, I am a benevolent god, and therefore I've decided <laughs> to keep it quite short. So, my thought today was prompted by someone who mentioned this to me on Twitter that, of course, it is. <laughs> as with all things, as with all things, can't expect me to go and get my own facts. Don't be fucking ridiculous. Have people for this. Um, so, <laughs> I can't even remember who it was. I'm not even going to give him credit for it. I'm really sorry, unknown contributor. Um, so, it was about Back to the Future, and the thought was that Calvin Great Klein. Scott was the brand of the pants that Martin mm-hmm. McFly wore, and therefore mm-hmm. that is his name when he is back in the past. Mistaken for Calvin Klein, that's what it's referred to. But Calvin Klein, during that era, in the mid-'80s, wasn't particularly well-known in Europe, apparently. Thus, if you watch Back to the Future in France, you will find that Martin McFly is called Pierre Cardin when he goes back in time. And uh, in, I think in Spain and possibly Italy as well, he's known as Levi Strauss. 
He's known as Marks and Spencer. Yes, in, in the UK literally version. no one calls Levi Jeans, Levi Strauss Jeans, to the best of my knowledge, but apparently that's a thing as well. But wow. there's some other sort of localization stuff as well, because I went down a bit of a localization rabbit hole with this. So when Dot Brown finds out that Ronald Reagan is the president and he makes some kind of, you know, slightly facetious comment about Jane Wyman and Jack Benny, they thought no one would know who that was. So in the European, and when I say European, I don't think I mean the English language, man. I think I mean the dubbed ones. They became Marilyn Monroe as the first lady, Jerry Lewis as vice president, and John Wayne as Secretary of Defence in that particular line. <laughs> but uh, I, I went further down the rabbit hole oh even than this oh, no. and actually skipped films to the European version of Demolition Man. Now, one of the things you remember from Demolition Man is, is that Taco Bell wins the fast food chain wars and emerges as fine dining. You remember this? Yeah? Yes. You must yes. remember this. Yeah. The Taco and there was a whole thing. Exactly. And at Comic-Con that year, they actually did a, a pop-up restaurant of that Taco Bell completely did recreated. They? Yeah, they did. We didn't get Aww. to go that year because, no. you know, it was <laughs> many, many years before we started working at Empire, but still. Yeah. But yes, as you are, as you quite correctly say, they did change that because they didn't think Taco Bell would be known in Europe. So they changed it to Pizza Hut, which means that if you go on the internet and you search for... Search? search. And you search... Turner and, and search. If you go on the internet and you search for the Pizza Hut cut... Hashtag release the Pizza Hut cut <laughs> of Demolition Man. You will find the footage where they have horrifically overdubbed Pizza Hut as they mouth Taco Bell in all of the various scenes. And it is the worst bit of post-production you'll ever see in your life. You don't even need to do that. You just need to watch Demolition Man in this country because that's no, 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 what no, happens it was in this country. No, no, but it was Taco no, Bell no, no. in the UK, you can, No, sure. it's not. There was no Taco the Bell in this country. Time, yeah, I know there wasn't. But the first time I saw Demolition Man, I'm absolutely certain. I'm sure it I is. Know. I'm sure I don't it think is. It was. I'm sure because I'm, I'm, the last time I watched Demolition Man, and obviously I watch it every Wednesday, three o'clock on the dot. It's really inconvenient, actually, for our for our schedule. <laughs> it really is. I'm often doing spoiler specials whilst watching Demolition Man. No, I, I'm sure the last time I watched it, the mouth didn't match the words. No, which is a that frequent can't be complaint true. Stallone films. I mean, that, that was quite possibly the case with the VHS at the time. I refuse to believe that the most recent Blu-ray edition of Demolition Man, or indeed wherever it's streaming, has the Pizza Hut cut. Do I have it? Well, Listeners, I don't care. Help us out here. <laughs> Track down the Pizza Hut cut and tell us which one you can find, uh, because I'm far too lazy to look myself. I don't think I have it anymore. I think I, I've conveniently I've lost got it somewhere. Out. You've worn it I've out, definitely Chris. got it somewhere. <laughs> your I cannot be bothered to go and find it. Yeah. But they, they did post on the logo as well, so the, the bell. Oh, yeah, Ben, put it on. Put it ben, on now. Do not okay. put it on, Ben. Do not put it on. <laughs> I've got ben. my copy. Ben's got the Blu-ray. All right, well, Ben, while Ben, while Bon, while Bon, while Bon searches for it, while Bon searches for the moment in question, uh, Helen. Hi. Tell me a fact. I mean, it's not a very good fact. It's just something I, I came across on Twitter <laughs> earlier in the that. week and thought and it was And then funny. it's a 45 part fact it's not. that is incredible and, you know, some no, revelation stop. about, you know, Marilyn Monroe. No, no, no women in this. Well, I mean, one woman, but not really a woman fact. Um, this is about the making of Man on the Moon. The REM film? No, the REM film. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the Milos Forman film. The Milos Forman film with starring. Uh, James, Jim, Jim Carrey. Carrey, right? But but the soundtrack is by R.E.M. So sure, yeah. But there was a dark horse during the casting process that suddenly emerged to challenge Jim Carrey for the lead role in the film. So this is from the making of book. Um, but basically, Gary Oldman started calling up to the producers, to Milos, to Francine Maisler, who was the casting director. And kept insisting that he was the best guy for the part, which seems odd given, you know, he didn't certainly at that point have any real track record in comedy and, you know, was British and didn't have a lot of tradition with American accents at that point and just 
none of it seemed to make sense. So finally, sort of out of respect, Francine apparently sent him the script. And about a week later, he calls back absolutely furious because the script hasn't arrived and his American agents are idiots. And can they just send it to his house, please? Because this is getting ridiculous. So yes, okay. She she resends it directly to his home in London. And eventually his audition tape arrives with them. And it's a sort of shadowy, quite hard to see thing. And it's about 30 minutes long. And it's just kind of cockney babbling is the way it's described here. He seemed to be in some kind of makeup, but he didn't look like Andy. It doesn't. It wasn't good makeup to get into the character, but he also didn't look like Gary Oldman. He just looked weird. And that's because it turned out not to be Gary Oldman. It was some random imposter, a jobbing actor from from London who was kind of struggling his way into the profession. And he thought that pretending to be Gary Oldman, trying to get cast in Man on the Moon, would be the way to make an impact. And the real Gary Oldman had never heard of the project and knew nothing about it. And still doesn't, to this day. Indeed. If you say to him, man in the moon, he just looks blank. He goes, what? Um, wow. Okay. But yeah. that's a really, that's full on Andy Kaufman in itself. It is, isn't it? That, so it's actually very, yeah. Commitment yeah. to the bit, you know? He really went for it. Uh, are we sure it wasn't Andy Kaufman? Because some people still think that he mm-hmm. might not be dead. Uh, so it might have been him pretending to be this British actor, pretending to be Gary Oldman. What wow. was his end game? <laughs> if he had been cast, what was that's he going bit, to that's say? That's the bit with portals. Um, I don't know. Maybe he was kind of, look, I mean, he obviously came clean eventually. So maybe he was just hoping that he'd amuse them or impress them enough that they'd give him a smaller role. But, right. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, you you, you got to give him points for commitment at the very least. Do we know for sure that it was Gary Oldman under all that makeup in Darkest Hour? That could have been literally <laughs> anybody. That's true. This is true. Maybe it's this dude. Maybe he's finally made it uh, and just no one noticed. Uh, all right. Well, you got to give points for commitment. And I think i got to give this week's point to Helen for that fact. It is Hoorah! a good fact. Well done, Helen O'Hara and her shadowy Gary Oldman impersonator. Ben, have you found anything in Demolition Man? Um, no, I haven't been able to actually like watch it because we're doing the podcast. And it doesn't say on the disc specifically whether it is endorsed the- by Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut cut or the Tiger Bell cut. It doesn't say. You failed me for the last time. James, kill him. I'll send Steppenwolf around. All right. I'm just gonna, everything, everything Ben says for the next three minutes will be a slow motion. That's his punishment for what failing to watch. Chris? <laughs> no, don't do that to me. Oh, no. Maybe stop. Now, that's commitment to the bit. Speaking of commitment to the bit, it is time to commit fully to the listener question, which this week comes from. Checks phone, opens. WhatsApp goes to our shared group, presses on message, clicks on picture. The Movie Badger, at The Movie Badger, (laughs) who asks, in the wake of the four-hour Snyder Cut, what is the bestest film with the longest running time? And is any member of the pod team mad enough to have watched the 485-minute film Empire? Uh, Andy Warhol's Empire, right? From 1964. No, is the short answer to that one. There's longer films than Empire, though, aren't there? Yeah, it's not the longest film ever made. Which one is the longest film ever made? I mean, like, but actually properly released film. There's one that's like 19 hours. Okay, I've never watched a 19-hour film. Some of them have felt that long, but... (laughs) So according to um, Quick Google brings up a list of the longest films of all time. And the longest film of all time is from 2019, apparently, which is a film called Amra Ekta Cinema Banabo, or The Innocents. 
and it uh, is a black and white Bangladeshi Bengali language fictional feature film. I'm literally reading on Wikipedia here at the moment. Uh, written and directed by Ashraf Shashir, and it is hold on to your bondathons, folks. Twenty one hours long. 21 hours long. I'm pretty sure I've had facts that lasted longer than that. <laughs> you definitely have, yeah. yeah. Release the dire cut of all your facts, <laughs> all the bits I've cut out when I just lost a will to live. Uh, it's followed by a film called The Journey, which is 14 and a half hours long. The Floor from 2018, which is 13 and a half hours long. Um, all of these sound like gauntlets being thrown down to James Cameron <laughs> as he makes Avatar 2. Uh, 12, and a half, 12 hours, 55 minutes for Out 1 from 1970. Uh, Showa, nine and a half hours from 1985. Evolution of a Filipino Family, nine hours, 53 minutes. Uh, but none of these things. <laughs> is my facts. <laughs> so what is the, the the longest film that you love? What's the film that you go, okay, I don't care that this is three hours long. I want to watch Portals again. What is, <laughs> what is that film? <laughs> it's got to be Lord of the Rings Return of the King, actually, mm. because the extended cut of that is four hours and 12 minutes. And, and to be is honest, it? It, feel, it feels like that. Yeah, I mean, it's monstrous. Because it's, it's the one that gets the most footage restored. Like theatricals, I think, three hours 20. And this is right. four hours 12. I mean, yeah. and it's the theatrical one already felt quite long. So <laughs> this one feels very long. But it's, it's one of the things, and I've often sort of wondered whether or not... see. Return of the King, I think, benefits in terms of restored material probably more than the other two in terms of making it coherent. Because there's, for example, the, the bits with the Oathbreakers doesn't really make a lot of sense in the theatrical cut because it doesn't have any weight to it and it just feels like a cop-out and it ruins Pelennor Fields. So there are a few elements in there that actually really work in Return of the King. That mm-hmm. said, four hours and 12 minutes, especially when at least an hour of that is the ending, um, mm. is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. But I love it. Like, yeah, you know, I, I won't it, yeah. watch the theatrical cuts of these films anymore because I do think, and I mean, I'm going to use this to shill for a feature we just put up on the website. We've just done a, a really big piece on the website, which is 22 films which have director's cuts that substantially change the substance of the movies, obviously inspired yeah. by the Snyder Cut. Uh, and Lord of the Rings obviously appears on there because mm. the extended editions are quite seismic. And Jackson like had the idea for doing the extended editions while he was in pre-production on the films. Like, he planned to do it all along. I think early on, he thought these will be the definitive ones because people have more patience at home than they do in theatres mm. but because I mean like 4 hours and 12 minutes like without for example uh, an interval would be yeah, I think punishing. Trixie, yeah. yes. Trixie Hobbits. I think, you're, I think you're harsh on the Pelnor Fields in the theatrical cut because it's also oh, no, good I see, It feels like a deus ex machina. Like when the, when the ghosts appear, it just feels like, and then ghosts, like, no, like in The Hobbit, like, it, and then eagles. It's still been explained a, a little not bit. properly. Like it's, it's just, it doesn't, I think, because it doesn't give it enough screen time, enough weight, it doesn't feel earned. When they come in and literally save the day, you want that to feel earned. And I think in the extended cut, you really feel that. And I think that was, a, when I watched that in the cinema, that really bugged me. And that kind of mm. ruined Pelennor Fields for me. I still haven't fully recovered from it. Never so now me, this, so. this this heals that particular <laughs> wound of mine. And I like it. That that said, the mouth of Sauron can fuck right off. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's not a great bit. Also, also Saruman, you don't know how he dies unless you watch the extended cut as well. Like his whole, whole arc never ends. I've never seen the extended cut what? of Return of the King. What I've seen the, the other fuck? two extended editions. I've seen the first two because, I mean, they're not that much longer, but I've always heard people say, do you know what, Return of the King one is just way too long. So I don't think I've ever actually seen Saruman die. Mm. It already had like 45 different endings. How many endings does it have 157. Now? 157. Oh, I'm in They had in a couple, but not a huge number of extra endings. Yeah. I just think every character in that movie should get a chance to say goodbye uh, at some point. 
And I don't mean in this sort of Predator Aloha style you have been watching. That would be a good way of adding <laughs> that would them be an hour. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. But just like if it was, you know, last scene where they all come in at the end, I, you know, I don't know the movie very well, uh, full confession, oh but that scene at the end where they all come in and Frodo's like in his bed and then Gandalf comes in and everyone's like, hee, hee, hee. you know, that scene. <laughs> if everybody who was in the movies, all three films, even the dead people, came in and went hee, hee, hee at You've each other. the internet version of that, I think, yes. rather than the actual <laughs> than canonical that, That's not the extended that's edition, I, I should, should be yes, very clear on this. Why. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty clear. Oh, God. Um, I, I know it's a very recent one, but um, and I've still only seen it the once, but I genuinely loved The Irishman when I saw oh, it. Ah, Jesus, and he loved you as well, Benjamin. Loved you. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I ended up paying quite a lot of money to go and see that in the cinema Mm -hmm. and I was on my own and just not having any distractions at all. Mm -hmm. Like I love a long film that is just like, sit down, you're going to like be taken somewhere for a long time. And I came out of that film, the whole point of the length of that film is that it feels like you've lived in someone else's life for three and a half hours. And I think it Mm -hmm. needs that amount of runtime to really let you live within their experience. So I like The Irishman a lot. I haven't revisited it at home yet because I'm going to wait until I've got a chunk of time long enough to watch it without a break again. Mm. But I do love a long movie. Like recently, when in fact, when we were doing the uh, director's cuts piece for online, I'm a massive fan of Doctor Sleep. And I think the mm-hmm. director's cut of that is great, as is the theatrical. The director's cut of that is three hours long. I'm a huge Cloud Atlas fan. I end up going back to Cloud Atlas probably once a year, even though that film was really long, because that doesn't just take you to one place, it takes you to six places. Mm. None of them good. And you re- No, they are great. It's a great it's a great film. And you feel like you've been through so much mm-hmm. by the end of it. Agreed. In a good way. I think it does a really interesting job of at which points it flits from story to story. Because mm. I think if it did just present them as six separate chunks. I think the way they interweave it and make it feel filmic yeah. um, is part of the magic well, of that. What they for did me. with the structure of that book is really, really clever. I think actually, it's a it's a fantastic piece of adaptation. Um, I was going to say Lawrence of Arabia, which was the last film mm-hmm. I saw before lockdown in the really? cinema. Yeah, in the cinema. Wow. Yeah, it was on at the BFI. I was there doing research for the book Women versus uh-huh. Hollywood. Out now. Uh, look, we're all shilling <laughs> something. Three and a half hours, right? Three hours, 48, according yeah, to IMDb. Yeah, it's pretty close to four. They have an <laughs> interval and you are glad of it. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, especially because also you're watching the desert, so you're very tempted to drink water. No, I'm a big fan, big fan of long films. I don't think films can be too long. Like When you're in a cinema, I think there are certainly limits. There are limits to what the bladder can withstand. But I, I think at the home, you know, when you can pause it and have a tea break and whatnot, you know, bring it on, 10, 20 I, hours. Look, I can't no, have too much of it. There's a, such a thing as structure and storytelling, and that's really important too. And we're going to get onto a film which may or may not have problems in that area. <laughs> hey, you leave the little things out of this. <laughs> but like, Lagan actually is a is a good film. I have seen that. But Bollywood films as standard come as sort of three hours plus, and in, in many, many cases, certainly traditionally. And a lot of them struggle to kind of hold up that running time, for me at least, as, a, as someone who isn't entirely versed in the culture, uh, in the ones that I have seen. So I, I don't know that more is always better. I think it's all about what the film needs. We talk a lot about comedies, mm. you know, often being mm-hmm. sort of 
ideally under 90 minutes. And I know you don't have any experience of that particular genre, James, but mm-hmm. you know, it, you, there is such a thing as brevity being the soul of wit and some things. So Yeah. Over the course of the pandemic, I've always loved a 90-minute movie, and I've grown to really appreciate it over the course of the pandemic uh, as well. But I do love sometimes just sitting down and luxuriating in a big, old, long movie. Uh, I love JFK. I think he was great. Real tragedy what happened to him. But I also like the Oliver Stone movie of the same name. And that's one of my favorite ones. And that's one I kind of go to. Not every year. I've fallen out of the habit a little bit, but it's one of the ones I really love to to revisit. But what's what's your game for these? You know, do you do you take intervals? Do you place intervals into the movies for yourselves? Do you do you do that? How what's your bladder control like? I have to I have to say I'm very, very good. I don't go to the toilet during movies, but you know, I do get sore in the old batok uh, region, so I have to shift around a little bit. During long I think, films, uh, I certainly recently did a four-hour one without a break, but uh, but yeah, I, I'm not I'm not too fussy about it. I will just pause at a moment. I won't sort of plan it in advance and be like, right, the moment that it cuts to Hawkeye, we're taking a break because <laughs> he deserves our attention and respect. Exactly, 100%. we must be focused on everything he does. Ronin, baby. For me, cinema, I will not leave my seat. Like I, I make sure I no, plan I. my liquid yeah. intake beforehand mm. to make sure that I won't need the loo even in a long film. Mm-hmm. If I'm at home, I will pause it to go for a wee because otherwise you're just sitting there uncomfortable and not really concentrating because you're like, God, I'm busting for a piss and I have a... And who are you disturbing by pausing it? it? Like, well, exactly. Yeah. Um, but for me, in terms of planning to watch a long film at home... There are certain ones where I'm like, you know, I, yeah, I will. I'll wait until I have enough time to watch this in its entirety in one sitting. I'm kind of loath to to go. Well, I'll watch an hour of it now, and then I'll watch the next couple oh, yeah, of hours. Oh yeah, we'll do that. Um, I mean, it's not always possible. That's the thing with super long films is actually having the chance to squeeze it into an evening or a weekend or whatever you've got going on uh, is not always the easiest. Mm. So yeah, it's not always possible, but there are certain ones that I'll wait until I just have a full afternoon. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing anything and I have the time to really just get lost in this. Would it be amazing if um, you could pause a movie in the cinema the same way you can at home? No, No. because everybody would be able to do it. (laughs) Everybody oh, it'd be just a disaster. <laughs> oh, no. no oh, wind it back a bit. I horrific. missed a bit. I missed a bit. Sorry. What'd he say? <laughs> I got no. distracted. The only thing with intervals if is that um, then everybody is trying to go to the loo or trying to go and get snacks at the same time. It's like a non-ideal mm. system, even even in a cinema, to have an interval. You're saying it should be staggered in <laughs> yeah, some if way. if you've got a blue Everyone wristband. Misses five <laughs> minutes at, at a specific point. Yeah, I think you just have to... Well, like I remember going to see uh, The Hateful Eight and I just sat through the interval. I, yeah, I so was okay. I. I stood up and, you know, stretched the legs, but basically did not attempt to run for the I think we went to the, the same loop. one, didn't we? The 70 mil one in yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was I amazing. That as well. I, I really didn't like that film first time around and I wish I could go and see it again in the big oh, presentation because I'm a lot more up on it than I used to be. And the, mm. the kind of circumstance around it, the pomp and circumstance was great. High on my wish list post lockdown, I would love somewhere like the Prince Charles. I'd love for Quentin to come over, bring his Kill Bill, the whole bloody affair. I've never seen that as the sort of full presentation. Mm. I think he has mm. his own copy of it that he just like screens himself. I don't think it's really widely available, but I would love to go and see all four hours of that in one go. That would be an absolute cracker. Um, going to throw in the Seven Samurai. Mm. Akira Kurosawa's movie, three and a half hours long. I always thought that The Magnificent Seven growing up, which obviously is a remake of it, was in the same ballpark. But it's not. It's it's a brisk 
two hours and eight minutes. The long John Sturgis, Steve McQueen movie is The Great Escape. So throw mm. that one in there as well. That's that's what I like to watch. I also throw in the Kingdom of Heaven director's cut, which is 194 oh. minutes long and significantly better than the theatrical cut. Indeed it is. But the only time I've ever experienced an interval... No, actually, no, you're right, Ben. Yep, yeah, Hateful Eight in the cinema. Uh, I've experienced an intermission there. And obviously... Uh, Schindler's Kenneth- List had an intermission as well. Did it? Really? Yeah, it did. did it? it did have did a. It? Yeah. I don't remember that. Oh, it did, huh. but I saw it. I didn't. Oh, maybe maybe so. it was just the uh, the Canon Cinema in Edgware, but it did have one. Yeah, well, that's 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 nice of them. Um, but I was thinking of Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Hamlet. Oh, fucking love that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful film. Fifteen minutes halfway through, so you can go out and enjoy a mild cigar. Isn't that the one where he got nominated for best adapted screenplay? Um, <laughs> And literally, it's uncut. The the adaptation is, I think he added the word charge. But of course, you're still adapting for the screen. You know, you're still kind of adding stage directions and so on. But um, but yeah, it is entirely Shakespeare's (laughs) text. Yeah, He's taking credit for that work in the same way that William Shakespeare did. Isn't that right, Helen? Oh! (laughs) Okay, you're going to start with this whole, you know, Essex nonsense again. I cannot even. Stratfordian for life, yo. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, Anyway, now it's time for this week's first guests. And yes, I meant guests uh, because it is the father and son duo who are at the heart of James Darcy's directorial debut, Made in Italy, which is out next week on VOD. And the father and son duo are Liam Neeson and his son, Michael Richardson. They've been on screen together before. Most notably, of course, in Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, but also very, very briefly in Cold Pursuit. And now they're back, back, back this week in a much, much more involved drama about a father and a son who bond over the loss of their wife and mother, respectively. And if that sounds like there is a autobiographical overlay, if there are some echoes of what, of course, happened to Liam and Michael in real life a few years ago when they tragically lost Natasha Richardson, then... You would be right. And that is something that was certainly on both of their minds when they agreed to do the movie. And so when I spoke to them last week, uh, we talked about that. We talked about shooting together and a great many things besides. So here we go. Liam Neeson and Michael Richardson. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the stars of Made in Italy, Liam Neeson and Michael Richardson. How are you both? Not too bad, Chris. Not too bad. Thank you. Very well. Excellent. Where, Where are you both? More to the point. I'm upstate New York, at 95 miles north of Manhattan. And where, where Michael is, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out in LA, and um, yeah, it was quite spur of the moment. I was anticipating being 95 miles north of New York City with my dad, but, um, but I'm here in Los Angeles. Okay. So when you say spur of the moment, in what way? Because I know you guys were quarantining together for a while. So were you you sick of each other and you just had to get out? Is that what happened? It wasn't as no. that, actually. No. <laughs> uh, the big quarantine was last year. I, I had finished, just about finished, a film in uh, Winnipeg. And uh, so I got up here on the 20th of March, which is you know almost a year ago. And I was here for a good seven months. Uh, and Michael was here. Michael came and went. And, uh, yeah, we saw a lot of each other, but not, not to the point where, where we were, were kind of like the fuck out of my face, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, Michael, is that true from your, your point of view? 
Yeah, it's relatively true. I'd say the first three months <laughs> I was I was with dad and um no, we get along swell. And my younger brother was there. I'm 25. So it feels like I kind of left the nest not that long ago. And to be then like thrusted back into the nest, it was it was nice because when are we ever gonna have a chance to live under, you know, one roof as like a, a family like that. Towards the end, I did feel like there was something, even though we were all getting along and nobody was at each other's throats, it was kind of like, I feel like I should be by myself somewhere as an independent 25-year-old. <laughs> I have to say, you know, unlike millions of Americans in this country who literally don't know where the next meal is coming from. I always have to nip myself. Um, you know, what, what we have here, upstate New York, I have a few acres to puddle about in, various toys, swimming pool, um, billiard room, screening room, and, you know, different rooms to watch TV. I have a wonderful library of books. Um, I was actually in heaven, and I, 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 I say that in all honesty, and uh, but also very aware uh, of the millions that were and are still suffering in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a hell of a time. It really is a hell of a time. But is this a, that's also the house, Liam? Of, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Where you first read the script for this, and you then presented the script without comment, if I'm right in thinking to Michael. Sure, yeah. My, I have a, a wonderful English agent called Sue Latimer, and uh, she, um, she said, Liam, I want to send you this script. It might be near the knuckle. I didn't quite know what she meant, but she said, I'll just send it to you. So I read it, and it reverberated with me in a very, very strong way. Uh, and it was interesting that it was billed as a comedy, which I eventually was able to see, but uh, it, I, 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 I've been likening it to when I first read it. It was like a kind of a mild punch to the gut, but it was certainly a punch to the gut. And I thought, uh, the actor in me eventually thought, this could be very, very interesting to do with my son, Michael. Uh, he may not be quite old enough. Um, in fact, Michael was 23 when we shot it. But I thought it was beautifully written. I knew James uh, Darcy uh, only as an actor. I'd never met James before. I knew this was his first directorial film. He had shot a little film before that, which I'd seen. But, but I, I totally trusted him. I, I just thought the person that wrote this script has to be trusted because it's it's beautifully written, and um, and he was also going to get Lindsay Duncan, mm -hmm. who's just extraordinary. Lindsay's a national treasure, and some wonderful Italian actors, and uh, and a great crew. One of, I've made ninety four, ninety five films, and I, I have to say the crew were just one of the best. Anyway, I'm, yeah. I'm around, but, but that was my reaction. 
but of course you, you say that you know that the film was when you read the script you were told it's going to be near the knuckle and it's not an autobiographical film but the parallels with your real life situation for both of you obviously is are are are, are very real and very apparent and did you both have a conversation with yourselves about what that would mean for you emotionally, both in terms of shooting this movie, which is about catharsis and grief and loss and healing, and also this aspect of the job as well, the promotional aspect when you'll be talking about you know, your mother, Michael, your, your wife, Leah and Natasha, over and over and over again. Was that something that, that gave you both pause? Well, it is something we spoke about. I think when it came to the the film itself, everything was there in the script, and obviously we both we both knew the parallels there. Um, but I remember that was something Dad had spoken to me about because having not really done publicity at all um, before, and the topics around mom and and um, and grief that we had, we did have a conversation about that um, sort of, you know, we're going to have to talk about this a lot. And, and, you know, I'm, I was, I was okay with that. I think it's something that everybody goes through. It's the human experience that you lose somebody very close to you in your life, sometimes a lot earlier than, than one would like. Um, but that the grieving process is weird and and sort of important to to talk about important to acknowledge at least yeah i i i I agree with what michael's saying i also the actor in me knew the scenes where i had to be emotional let's put it that way uh i i left them totally alone i knew i could access them on the day that was Absolutely, I didn't have to think about it, work on it. Um, I knew where I had to go, and I was confident enough and experienced enough to know, okay, that's a very heavy scene, and it's, I, I'll take care of it when we mm-hmm. shoot it. And that's what I did. Was that something that you shot towards the end? Because I guess a lot of actors sometimes will like to leave the, the, the really heavy emotional stuff until the end, the end of a movie, or because you, you obviously you know each other fairly well. Was that something that you could, you could go into very early in the process? It wasn't too early in the, in the shot, in the scene, in the shoot. Was it, Michael? I can't quite remember. No, it was quite near the end, which I was, I was happy about because I think it's easy to see that the emotional scene towards the end, the sort of climax, if you will, and 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 as as like a not so experienced actor, maybe magnify that and get a little worried. But equally, it's sort of same with that 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 was all between us, and to not just force it, you know, and. And that it was it was there, and the energy on the set, the the people, the whole ca- the whole cast and crew, everybody was it was just very loving, and that made it that made it kind of special. That's true. It's you know sometimes uh, when you're 
doing scenes in the film that are that are very heavy emotionally, you know, sometimes out of the corner of your eye, you'll catch a grip or one of the crew texting, and you think, "Fuck off, Jesus Christ!" Have some sensitivity, but yeah. here and this with this wonderful Italian crew that we had, they they were always keeping us buoyant. They were protecting us, which is lovely to do because that that means you can kind of explore your own emotions for the scene deeper, knowing that you've been really held and hugged by this crew, and and that's the best way to describe it. We were hugged by this crew, you know. And uh, and can we talk as as well about about accents? Because Michael, your accent today is your 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 own accent, uh, which is how would you describe it? American, New York? What, what are we what are we talking here? I, I think it's American. I I grew up in New York, but a lot of people say I have this kind of Californian stoner accent, which I, I don't know quite where it comes from. But um, it's it's yeah, it's New York. Okay. Okay. And in the movie, you're English, and uh, and uh, Liam, you're you're playing English in this one as well. But over the years, have you ever taken on approximations of your your dad's Northern Irish accent? Honestly, not really. Weirdly, the only word I say with a slight Irish inflection is Ireland. People here say Ireland, and I say it's kind of weird that it's quite literally the one word is Ireland. I mean. Um, and yeah, that's kind of it. That's where I hear it. That's interesting. So, Liam, you've never taken it back to the old country, have you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we've been back many, many, many is the time. I can't remember the last time I was. We, I lost my mother last June. Oh. Uh, and uh, it was strange for Michael and myself and Michael's brother, Daniel, for the three of us to be here looking at my mother's funeral via a computer screen that was kind of strange. Oh, you, you did the, uh, the the virtual funeral, of course, because yeah. we're in the middle of. Oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was kind of surreal. Um, but yeah, but before my mom passed away, yeah, we we would go back. I would go back twice a year, perhaps. Michael and Danny, and, like once every other year, I think. Once every other year, something like that. You know? Yeah, I was born in Dublin. Dad was filming Michael Collins, um, and. He, I I I, re- I haven't been back to Dublin except I think at the airport um changing flights but I really want to go back to Dublin normally we just go to to Northern Ireland um Ballymena Belfast yeah. and small town Cushendall yeah yeah we must go back to Dublin well when this is all over you know go back to Northern Ireland go back to Ireland have a big old have a big old hooli as they say back back home <laughs> One last thing I wanted to ask about uh, I, I, a slight bone to pick with uh, th- with Jack's bedroom decor in this movie. There, there's a there's Harry Potter posters on the wall. There's also yeah. some Manchester United posters on the wall. Now, Michael, does this come from you? Well, what's happening here? It didn't come from me, and um, I'm actually a Liverpool fan. Uh, regardless, I'm a sucker for David Beckham, so I was okay with that. The sort of retro David Beckham look. You can't quite, you can't really hate that. So I was cool with Jack, you know, having that in his room, but no, I'm, I'm a diehard Liverpool fan. So I guess you could say there was a piece of me that, that was, that was dying in that scene. 
I was going to say because Liam, I know that you're you know you're 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 a Reds fan, aren't you? You're a you're a Liverpool fan. So you, how did you stand for this? Um, I I'm not a, a huge football fan. I'll be honest with you. I never was, but uh, certainly um, Celtic, definitely Man U. You know, because I grew up in the days of George Best. Oh, come on now. But yes, I am a, 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 con, a convert. I am a Liverpool fan. Uh, All right, good, good, good. Because I, I just happen to be wearing a uh, Liverpool top here with the uh, with, with our latest defeat coming up in a couple of hours. I had to wear this, but, but anyway, guys, I'm, I'm going to head off. This has been there an absolute pleasure. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back. We'll be back. Uh, Michael, Liam, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much indeed. Thank you. Okay, so that was Liam Neeson and Michael Richardson, who, in case you're wondering why they have different names, Michael Richardson was known as as Michael Neeson for a long time, but he changed his name to Michael Richardson to honour his late mother. Uh, Made in Italy is out next week, and we'll be reviewing it on next week's show. Time now to delve deep into this week's movie news, and I think there's really only one place to start, and that is with the Oscar nominations, which came out earlier in the week. What do we make of them? Decent set of Oscar nominations? Mike? Leading the way, somehow, with 10 yeah. nominations. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? It's, it's, I mean, I think it's better than usual. It does show that the, uh, the, the award's efforts to actually consider things before they vote, I think, is paying off. Uh, to, their efforts to widen their voting pool and give more consideration to films not made by white men, I think, is, is paying mm. off. Um, what I do take some comfort from is the fact that, you know, we there was a really strong showing for the likes of Promising Young Women from Nomadland. Mm. Um, mm. You know, the, the acting nominations are a completely different picture to what they were, say, even five years ago. And, and that does suggest that we're kind of opening up the field a little bit and considering people more on their merits. So that's good. The Oscars is recognising movies that are coming out soon here. So the likes of Promising Young Woman haven't come out in this country yet. This this is the problem for me. I've barely seen any of these films because even hmm. like compared to normal years, obviously this stuff would have been out in the cinema around now, even in the UK. But as it stands, if you look through the Best Picture nominees, The Father hasn't come out here. Judas and the Black Messiah only just came out last week. Mm-hmm. Mank obviously been around for a while. Minari, not out yet. Yep. Nomadland, not out yet. Promising yep. Young Woman, not out yet. Sound of Metal, yep. not out yet. Trial of the yep. Cargo 7. <laughs> I did not like Mank. Mank did literally nothing mm-hmm. for me. So I'm purely looking at this list of nominees from a sort of <laughs> top-down, no stake in any of this yet. Uh, mm. I do think it's an interesting list, but you guys tend to get like BAFTA-y, screenery disc things, right? So have yeah. you guys seen most of them? Yeah. Um, and they're good films. They're really good films. Um, they're not the sort of you know, big epic-y stuff that we would usually have this year. But like, there aren't that many of the nominated, of the sort of delayed films that I think would have been in Oscar contention. Not really. What would we have been looking at? The French Dispatch? Maybe West Side Story? Dune. Maybe, but like the realistically, the the Academy's you know hatred of science fiction is strong. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was, it was never, never going to get nominations except in my personal Oscars. I mean, it it might, and I hope it does because I think it looks astonishing, and I would love to see it up for best film next year. But I, like, I don't know that it would have done an Avatar and been in there. So I'm genuinely not sure which of the delayed films you think would have made this list stronger. If people are mentally adding a caveat to this list, I don't think they should. I don't think mm. this is a COVID list. I don't think there's no. a huge number of films that would have been on here that aren't. Mm-hmm. I think this is actually a really strong list. 
The difference is they're just a little bit smaller than your usual films, but that's actually quite a good thing. It means that there hasn't been a sort of massive bankrolled Oscar campaign that has derailed the chance of a smaller film. I think these are the films we would usually complain about being left out. And I think they're now being included in the Oscar ballot. And I think that's an entirely positive thing. Now, there are some films I loved more than some of these that that didn't make the list. So things like One Night in Miami, maybe. The Five Bloods has been mentioned a lot as a a sort of Mm -hmm. snubber and oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying this is the only possible list you could have put together for this year, but mm. I don't think it's a bad one. All right, let's go through some of the key categories. Sure. Uh, best animated feature. Let's do that. Best oh my animated God, feature. So good. Yes. What a lineup this year. Love it. This may not be a Pixar procession for once. Uh, Onward, Over Ooh. the Moon, a mm. Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. So good. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Soul yeah. and Wolfwalkers. Fan freaking tastic! I haven't seen Wolfwalkers yet, and it's I really want to. Great, it's on Apple. you have you have Apple. You have Just no check excuse. It I, I have no excuse for having not watched it. It's no, it's it's fantastic. I I think look, uh, Cartoon Saloon have now made four features. I think they've been mm. Oscar nominated for four of those features. They are officially better than Pixar at this rate, you know. Um, so <laughs> I would love to see them take a win uh, finally. Also, Shaun the Sheep, uh, Farmageddon, I watched I think three times in a row on the day my, my baby niece was born with my small mm. nephew because he wanted to watch it and I was trying to keep him very calm while his parents were out of the house. And it, you know what? It was still entertaining me on the third time in a row on that day. So I have very warm and fuzzy feelings towards it. Also, it meant that we got to hear uh, Priyanka Chopra Jones say the word Farmageddon on the I Oscars mean. live stream, which <laughs> was mean. amazing. That was worth it. Now, I, so I think massive credit to him for continuing, continually insisting on reading out the full title of Borat's subsequent <laughs> movie film, which I respect enormously. <laughs> yes. That brings us on neatly to best adapted screenplay because Borat's subsequent movie film is in there, uh, along with The Father, The Mauritanian, Nomadland, and The White Tiger. Now, Interesting enough, Borat subsequent movie films nomination, I read this earlier in this week, means it is the first franchise since The <laughs> yes. Godfather to have <laughs> its first two parts nominated in the best screenplay category, which I is mean, which is wild. That's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> well, the other thing I find wild about it is the, the screenplay is basically just a loose structure in which to hang Borat and his daughter doing these wild and crazy improv things. So how does that qualify as a as an adapted screenplay? So does it count for them basically like writing it on the fly? Is it counting those improvised yeah. interactions as like the the craft of being in that moment and creating these situations as actors in the moment? Mm. I wonder. I think that's quite yeah. an interesting notion. Obviously, the adapted thing comes in because obviously Borat saw it on yes, TV. Yes, of course, yes, yes. But yeah. um, ignore but, the word adapted. I mean, what qualifies it as an Oscar nominated screenplay? Um, I'm not entirely sure because for my money, I liked it fine, but there are much funnier movies of the last year. So, um, Palm Springs didn't get a nomination at all, which is crazy. Yeah, that, that was outrageous. Yeah, and I'm sorry if you're going to nominate this, then but was you know, did Barb and Star was even was it even eligible? I believe it was because I'm was pretty eligible. sure that Edgar's prayer was song, eligible yeah. for a song and didn't get nominated, which no, is just yeah. ridiculous. What? Yeah, that was a shame. Yeah, but um, another interesting thing about uh, Borat's subsequent movie film is that it has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight nominees on the writing staff of that movie because of the way it was written. And I also believe the way this is written is that pretty much anybody who's anybody in the British comedy writing scene 
was brought in to consult on it at some point. So I just have this feeling that if it wins, and it won't, but if it wins, it would be hilarious to see like like the polyphonic spree coming to the <laughs> stage of the Oscars and just like a million people just wind up on the stage with a million Oscars. And that's mainly the reason why it won't win, because they'd have to make so many Oscar statues that it would just bankrupt and pass. I don't think that's how they do that thing, though. I don't think that's really? how they do the voting. I don't, I okay. don't believe so. All right. All right. Uh, best original screenplay: <laughs> Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Yes. Go on, James. There you go. Um, Here he goes. It's. I mean, I. I. I don't know about that one. So I feel like this might be the the one that Minari could win. You know, it's it's the sort of little film that could. I think this year, even among all the little films, and I feel like that might be where they go for that. But. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, or it could be Promising Young Woman, I think. I think it might be we'll that see. one. Yeah. Best Director, uh, Thomas Finterberg for Another Round, which isn't out yet in this country. David Fincher for Mank. Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. Chloe Shao mm. for Nomadland. And Emerald Fennel for Promising Young Woman. Like Four of those movies aren't out in this country yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's... Again, I'm not loving the Fincher inclusion for once. I, I do love him as a director, but I I wasn't excited about that film. And that one feels like the, my God, he's David Fincher. We have to give him a nomination a little bit. The others, I think, are, are pretty great. Uh, and I'm loving the fact that we finally, for the mm. first time in 93 years, <laughs> have more than one woman nominated at once. And we've yeah. immediately hopped up from, what, six uh, ever to eight ever. This all Yay. feels like a really elaborate tie-in for your book. <laughs> no, it's embarrassing because they're like they're instantly making parts of it obsolete, which is very upsetting to me. Well, this you know? makes the paperback an essential pur- purchase. Hey. When is the paperback out, Helen? Uh, next spring. Well, there we go. Why so long? I, I, just to give people a chance to buy the hardback? I don't know. Like, why is the window between hardback and paperback so long and the window between theatrical and DVD is so short? I've I've accepted I I don't understand anything about publishing so hardbacks yeah. are much more profitable than paperbacks for publishers ah, so they want okay. to sell as many of them as possible. There you go. Best supporting actor Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of Chicago Seven, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, Leslie Odom Jr. One Night in Miami, and again I'm going to say what I said last week. He's very very good in that movie, but why has he been singled out over why is everyone he the else? One? Yeah. I think Ken- yeah. I think Kingsley Benadier is the best performance in that movie. I thought that. Here's as my well. theory: Hamilton stands. <laughs> Hamilton stands. Hamilton stands. It's all Hamilton stands. I mean, the man killed Hamilton. Spoilers. So you know <laughs> what I mean. I mean, they say it in the opening number. It's fine. <laughs> um, no, I, I like. I, I agree. I think he's great in the movie. I wouldn't necessarily have picked him out over. I don't. Well, I just don't know where I'd pick out of those four. Yeah. But that's not the weird part of this list, is it? What's the weird part of this? Okay, I'm getting to there. Uh, Paul yeah. Racy for Sound of Metal, or Rassi, I, I haven't heard his name said, so apologies if I've got that wrong. Uh, and Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. Now, this is the interesting part, because yeah. he is the lead of that movie. So, apparently, this is a, a quirk of the rules. Uh, so, apparently, you can't be up for both. You can't be up for both lead and supporting for the same role because that did happen once in history and they decided that was a bad thing because it is. Yeah. And so basically wherever you get most votes, that's where you go. And so even though he was campaigned for as lead, he didn't get enough votes, I believe, what? to qualify as a lead actor as one of the five. Huh? What? Yeah. What? But did get enough votes as a supporting actor to be in for supporting. That seems 
bonkers. But they what? did campaign for him as a lead. So they did. It wasn't that the studio faced with two black actors decided they didn't have a lead. I would like to make that clear. But yeah, this, the, the Academy, through a weird, weird situation, has decided that the film has two supporting actors and no lead. Okay, interesting. When this category was being read out, did anybody else gasp when they started saying Sasha Baron Cohen and you thought, Borat? Is he going to get the Borat nomination? Just for a moment. This is the thing. I said, whenever Borat's subsequent movie film came out, I said that he and Maria Bakalova are doing stuff in this movie that is incredible from an acting point of view and should be recognised, but that's never going to happen. Never in a million years. So, Best Supporting Actress category. Maria Bakalova for Borat's subsequent movie film. Um, what? Yeah, what? What a segue. Glenn Close, Hillbilly Elegy, nice. Olivia Coleman, the father, Amanda Seyfried the, for Mank, and Yu Jung Yoon for Minari. Glenn Close, who manages to get the Oscar nom and the Razzie nom for the same role, which is always nice. Fuck the Razzies for one thing, first yeah. off. But also, we, we Glenn Close is massively deserving of an Oscar. She's been nominated, is this like eighth time? It's something like her eighth time uh, nominated. She is well overdue. However, <laughs> if she gets the Oscar for that film, she instantly becomes a sort of Oscar baddie. And, she, and like, she's gone full Scorsese. Yeah, it's not like it's not like it's much worse than The Departed. Like it's a much much worse film. She should absolutely not win for that role. She has many more great roles in her, and she should be absolutely given the prize for one of those. But seriously, the guys know that she shouldn't be on this list, and she definitely shouldn't win. And I, she might anyway because of you know mm-hmm. the overdue thing. But uh, I, mm-hmm. I, for once, I find myself rooting against her, and that's a very uncomfortable place to be. Ooh. I think Amanda Seyfried might be in with a chance. Glenn Close would be up for the most acting in the most makeup. That would make sense. Oh, so much. Yeah. So, much, so much makeup. I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head as well. Fincher's nomination smacks a little bit of that as well. It's like, oh, we didn't nominate him for this movie and this movie mm-hmm. and this movie, and he hasn't won before, so maybe this is going to be his year for Mike. And listen, he directed the hell out of it, but... Is it his best film? Not by a long no. shot. I think Chloe Zhao is correctly the front runner in the directing mm. category, and but I would be I would be open to a Mank win for best supporting actress. I think Amanda Seyfried was was a real ray of light in that film. Also, it would make up for the lack of nominations for Mamma Mia. So, yeah. <laughs> and Mean Girls. Yeah. Yes. Of Finally, course. they're making up their oversight. Uh, <laughs> best actor: Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank. Stephen Young for Minari. Hmm. I mean, look, just for sheer heartbreak, uh, as well as a sort of testament to the performances he gave and the potential he still had, I think Chadwick Boseman is the front runner. But that's actually a pretty strong category in terms of performances. Mm. Anthony Hopkins is on phenomenal form in The Father. It's an extraordinary performance. Stephen Yuen mm. is amazing in Minari and Riz Ahmed, brilliant. But um, but yeah, I, I do think it's Chadwick Boseman, really. You think? I think so. Best Actress, Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andra Day for The United States, Princess Billy Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand for Nomadland, who would become a three-time Oscar winner if she wins that one, and Carrie Mulligan, Promising Young Woman. There is not a, bump, a duffer in that category. That is fucking phenomenal. Having said that, I think that's one of the categories where I could I could have squeezed people in. Where's Elizabeth Moss for Invisible Man? Sure, she's Where's, great, but come on. Uh, Rosamund Pike for I Care A Lot. 
And where is my real dark horse in this category? Kristen Milioti for Palm Springs, who is astonishing in that film. But, you know, hey-ho, comedic performance. Yeah, but genre, genre, genre. That's genre, your Genre, genre, genre. I know. Uh, best Picture, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, so Nomadland's the front runner at the moment? I think Nomadland's the front runner. I'm just checking the best editing uh, nod. So traditionally, now, okay, first of all, I think rules of Oscar prediction have gone out the window in the last two or three years since they actually changed up the membership, you know, and, and basically opened themselves up to new ideas. But traditionally, if you don't have a nomination for best editing and ideally also director, you probably don't win. The films up for best editing are The Father, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal and Trial of the Chicago 7. Mm-hmm. So that would seem to be the sort of top five, if you will, out of the best picture lineup. And the ones that kind of overlap there, well, you're looking at Chloe Zhao, Emerald Fennel, and and Fincher again, right? Mm-hmm. So probably one of those. No, you're not. No, Fincher. He's not in film editing. So it, I think it's going to be a woman. Yeah. yeah. Also weird that obviously Mank didn't get a screenplay nomination. It's it's not a good sign for its chances of um, of winning. So I I it, I think it's going to be a lady, and I think it's going to be Chloe Zhao, instantly doubling the number of women who have ever won a directing Oscar. What? If it was. Isn't that crazy? There we go. Anywho, we'll see. The Oscars take place at the end of April and keep them peeled for more incredible Oscar coverage uh, as the weeks tick by. Uh, Some other stuff that happened in the world of movie news this week, apart from James McAvoy going on the Bake Off, the Celebrity Bake Off on Channel 4 and just sending the internet into paroxysms of delight as he got to grip with stiff peaks and, oh my word. Oh, I'll say, blimey (laughs) O'Reilly. He made a cake still Maria. He did, yeah. I don't know what yeah. that he means. He made a cake of his demon in uh, his yeah. dark materials. Is that what his demon's called? The snow leopard? Mm. Yes. Mm. Ah. It's all very, very exciting. Uh, as is indeed the news that Avatar is once again the biggest movie of all time. Suck yeah. at Avengers Endgame. I never liked you anyway. <laughs> wow. Team Jake Sully all the way. I've always, I've always preferred Praise that movie. Ewa. I see you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the movie was, you might say, perhaps cynically re-released in China recently, <laughs> and got it was only like seven million behind Endgame uh, anyway, which is pretty astonishing, given that it came out in two thousand and nine, mm. and it was at the two point seven billion dollar mark, or even two point eight now, I think it is. Uh, and yes, indeed, it retook the crown from Avengers Endgame and the Russo brothers uh, were very, very sporting in their mm. rea- reaction to this and they did one of those traditionally the, the film has been superseded in the box, box office, office. the yeah, outgoing, outgoing champion they they do some sort of amusing illustration and they did an illustration of the Avengers Endgame logo turning to dust and being replaced by the Avatar logo uh, mm. it's only a matter of time before Endgame is re-released in an attempt to <laughs> wrestle back the crown <laughs> And I can see this going on forever and ever and ever. But why bother? Because they're both the same studio. Like Avatar, I can see them re-releasing it, first of all, because, you know, China's a much bigger box office now than it was in 2009. Mm. And second of all, because cinemas are open in China. 
So there's kind of a reason for that. I don't know if there's a reason to release Endgame again, but I'm up for it. Let's do it. There are always reasons to release Endgame Yeah, that's true. That's true. Even as I said, I'm like, what am I saying? (laughs) Also, it totally (laughs) makes sense. I know everyone's super cynical about Avatar 2 right now. I am very excited about Avatar 2. And after this year in lockdown, do you remember how much people lost their shit over going to Pandora for the first time? Like, people Mm. lost their minds over it. It was nuts. And after being inside for a whole year, like, that film is going to be so huge. I watched Avatar again recently and I just it still holds up it's, it's just great, such a great I still like it yeah it's, yeah. it's super B-movie-ish and it knows it people who are we like are the oh people. it's like We're stupid with, because of the unobtained it was like yeah that's the point it's playing in that landscape the Avatar ride is literally the best thing at Disney World better than Galaxy's Edge it is it's amazing it's oh. just amazing I went on it so many times <laughs> Did you plug your head? I did. I plugged myself into, into the... a banshee, and yeah, it was pretty good. Oh my god! That's what you were throwing out, presumably. <laughs> Do not plug yourself into the banshee. <laughs> Certainly not that way. Never invite James to one of those. A whole bunch of people have joined the cast of Mission Impossible Seven and possibly Eight as well, as revealed by Chris McQuarrie on his Instagram. Uh, did you see a couple of weeks ago where he revealed that? Well, but we already knew it. But but Kittridge is back. Henry Sherney is back as Kittridge. Um, so he's on his Instagram. McQuarrie is, and he's revealed that Rob Delaney, Charles Parnell, Indira Farmer, Carrie Elwes. And Mark yes. Gatiss have all joined the cast. And I don't know what this movie slash these movies is slash are going to be. And that's very, very exciting. Yeah, it'll be cool. Always up for Rob Delaney. Always up for a bit of Rob Delaney. Delaney. That's an in-joke for someone I went to university with. Anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. Who, made, who, who I don't even think listens to the podcast. Uh, anywho... Some other very exciting news. Talking to Kingsley Benadir, he has joined Secret Invasion in the MCU. He has joined yes. the Nick Fury, Talos, Scroll-fucked. Scrolls. <laughs> it's not going to be called Scroll Fact, James. Yeah, unless it's in Star. Uh, so that's exciting. <laughs> we don't know who he's going to play, be playing or pretending to be playing, but that's exciting news. Mm, it is. I think he's really great. And some sad news, of course, this week. We lost yet another great Yafet Koto, uh, who had so many great roles. Mm. He was tremendous. He was Parker in Alien. He was Alonzo Mosley in Midnight Run. I'm Mosley. Oh my God, he was so goddamn good in that. He was Dr. Kananga in Live and Let Die, which may be the most problematic James Bond movie, but <laughs> he has but he's one of the, the greatest problem. lines. He's not the problem. And he has one of the greatest lines in the history of that franchise. Uh, when he, <laughs> I still can't say this line without laughing. When he appears, um, James Bond is in his nightclub in Harlem. And <laughs> James Bond is about to introduce himself. And he goes, my name is... And, and Dr. Kananga interrupts him and goes, names is for tombstones, baby. That is one of the greatest lines in the history of cinema. And for that alone, and Homicide Life in the Street, he was so good yes. in that. Mm, so incredible. Yes. Oh, my God. What Loughlin a career. in The Running Man. Yeah. Oh, The Running Man. Do you know he was also in the conversation for Picard? Yes. Was he? Yeah. Yes. He was he was down to I think final three, I think, for Picard. I don't know if he was necessarily going to be called Picard, but he was in the in the running for the captain of the NCC one seven oh one D. So so you're mm. talking as in as in next yeah. generation as opposed to playing Picard in Star Trek Picard, which Correct. would have been an odd decision. That would have been odd, yes. <laughs> yes. Right. I see what you're saying. 
Difficult concept to grasp, Jim Boy. I realise that. He was tremendous. He was absolutely tremendous. He had one of the great movie stairs. He had one of the great mm. movie voices. He had such a presence about him. Blue Collar, the Paul Schrader movie, Blue Collar with Richard Pryor as well. That's a fantastic film. If you haven't seen that, go and check it out. 1978. Fantastic film. And... He was so, so good. I loved the story that on Alien, he just didn't want to die. And every day he was going, I don't think Parker would be killed. I don't think Parker would die today. I think, you know, <laughs> Parker would beat the alien and um, trying to talk Ridley Scott round. Um, I interviewed him years ago. I can't even remember why. I think it might have been for a midnight run piece I was doing. And uh, that voice, he was like very, very softly spoken, just a whisper on the other end of the phone. I was terrified the entire time because it's Alonzo Mosley. But he was a lovely, lovely guy and a great, great actor and very, very sad indeed. Mm. 81. So a sad farewell to one of the greats, Yavid Koto. And uh, very, very quickly, we're going to do some shameless plugging right now, not in the way that James did on the Avatar theme park ride. Uh, the new issue of Empire is out Today, it's new issue. Hurrah. It's new Empire Day right now as we're recording this. It'll be new Empire Day plus one by the time you're listening to this. Uh, and it's very, very exciting. And Ben, it's very, very exciting for you as yes. well. I wrote my first cover feature. Yeah. Oh. Hooray, exciting. And a Marvel one. Super Woo. exciting. We've got Marvel Falcon Shield. and Winter Soldier. Marvel Shoe. <laughs> I know I got my big check in the post. At <laughs> least the <laughs> great. Uh, isn't it so great when you get that first bank of faggy check in the post and it's, you know, all the zeros are just falling off and then yeah. someone brings it up to you in a gold-plated Lamborghini. And they make all the zeros look like <laughs> Mickey Mouse heads. It's so cute. It's amazing. <laughs> so amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> joking. We're joking. We cannot stress yeah, enough. That was a bit. How that much was a we're joking. That was a bit. Yes. Anyway, Ben, yes, you wrote you wrote about Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yes, I did. And I spoke to uh, Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan and Kevin Feige, the big dog. Uh, yeah. Corey Scoglund, the director. Malcolm Spellman, the, the head writer. Uh, Emily Van Camp, Daniel Bruhl. Got loads of people and they said lots of interesting things. And we get to see the show tomorrow. Hooray. Or today, as you're listening to this. And, oh, um, but that's, what a honest, time to be alive. Seen it. <laughs> that's true. We have yeah, yeah, yes, you know, I actually haven't. haven't. The first episode. <laughs> have you not? No, I, I mean, I've been too busy to watch the screener and then now I've worked out a good way to get it through the TV. But I was like, I'm going to watch it on Friday morning on the big TV with the sound and all of wow. that rather than on my laptop. So I've Blimey. held off. Yes. And there's other great stuff beside the issue, of course. Um, I don't have the issue to hand, but just take Palm my Springs, word for that. Palm Springs. Palm Springs. That's right. Oh, hey, you know why I can remember this? I read the contents every month um, and I write them down on my... Here we are. Look at this, everybody. So, Falcon and Winter Soldiers in the features section. Palm Springs. I did that. I should have remembered that. I interviewed Andy Samberg and Andy Ciara, the writer, and Max Barbakov, the director, and Kristen Milioti, who should have been Oscar nominated, uh, about Palm Springs, which may or may not be your new favourite film. Trust us in that one. Um, so he said, being slightly equivocal. Um, if films, uh, We have a feature about films and planes and how that has changed over the years. Uh, we have a feature on Line of Duty as it returns, as it floats up the lagoon on a bubble and onto yes. TV screens. Uh, we have De Niro and Scorsese revisiting Raging Bull. We have Emilio Estevez uh, revisiting Emilio Estevez <laughs> as the Mighty Ducks returns. We have a feature on Minari uh, and Julia Roberts is this month's God Among Us and that's where we explore the, the careers of some wonderful, wonderful megastars. What else is in the issue? Well, in the in the the news section, the Take Twenty section, yeah. they've got uh, Underground Railroad, Army of the Dead, Cruella, yeah. um, some, a look back at One Division, um, and Tony Collette uh, paying Ooh. tribute to Christopher Plummer. Um, oh. 
Tell us about your section, Chris, or shall I tell you? Because I've got no, it. No, it's fine. I've got it here. Um, <laughs> it's all good stuff. It's review. It's the section that you should turn to first because it's the best section. Uh, and Albert Brooks is this month's big interview at the in that section where I talked to him about Lost in America and Defending Your Life. And it was an absolute pleasure and a privilege for him to be talked to by me. And oh my uh, wow. <laughs> no, it's really, really good that interview. Check it out. And we have Russell T. Davis on It's a Sin. We rank the best movies of the year 1984. There's all all sorts of good stuff coming your way. It's available right now in all good and evil news agents. I cannot stress enough how much you need to buy this issue. You need to be clued up on all the things that are contained therein. And enough shameless plug-in. Time now to talk to the last guest this week, our final guest this week. And it is John Lee Hancock, who is the director of The Little Things, the Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, Jared Leto cop thriller, which came out on PVOD last week and obviously is still available for you to watch this week. And um, we talked a lot about that, a little bit about his career, which has seen him write and direct movies as diverse as The Blind Side, Saving Mr. Banks, and the rookie over the years. Here we go. Me talking to John Lee Hancock. Enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the writer and director of The Little Things, John Lee Hancock. How are you, sir? I'm well. I'm well. How are you, Chris? I'm not too bad, all things considered. Uh, the Little Things is, I, I guess, one of the movies that was going to get a cinematic release and now isn't. So just starting with that, first of all, how do, how do you feel about about that side of things? Well, I mean, it was always intended to be a movie for theaters, um, you know, with a, an opening date of 129, but to uh, probably put it out in December for awards consideration and stuff. <clears throat> As the pandemic raged on, I think anybody with half a brain thought that there might be possibly some streaming component to movies coming out. And when Wonder Woman made their big announcement, you know, it certainly thought that that was a certain aspect of it or like you know might might come to pass for us as well <clears throat> it was a bit of a shock when it all happened at once uh but uh you know we rolled up our sleeves and said we've got a movie coming out we need to let people know that it's uh, that it's out there so they can find it in theaters were available and then on hbo max um for those here in the u.s i know a little bit about the story of how this movie came to be and it's I think a tremendous it's a tremendous inspiration almost to I think to any writer who has maybe written a script it hasn't happened for whatever reason they've put that script in the drawer and they maybe automatically assume that it's never going to happen did you think that with this because this this script was sitting in your drawer for roughly how long John about 30 years there give or take yeah, almost 30. I came across a draft that I had registered with the Writers Guild, and it was in the spring of 1993. So that mean, <clears throat> means that the script was finished at that time. So I think I was writing it in 92, 93. But I don't have, uh, you know, emails or anything else I can go back to and look at to see where it was sent uh, or those kind of things. So yeah, but I, I wrote it and uh, I was living in Hollywood at the time and I was very much into crime and, uh, you know, crime shows and crime movies and especially movies from the 70s. And I kind of felt that um, a lot of the movies from the 80s, if they had cops uh, chasing a killer, the first two acts would be really engaging and interesting as they, as they follow clues and you kept the audience guessing. But then the third act usually 
was, uh, you know, the identity of the of the of the killer is exposed, uh, and then the cop and the killer have some big chase. Um, and they're firing guns or as an action set piece or something like that. And then the, the good guy kills the bad guy. So I wanted to avoid that at all costs. So I, I thought, tried to think of a, of a different third act, a different way to go about it. And, um, and hopefully we got there. I'm very pleased with it. But yeah, it's been a long time coming. I mean, it was how many different people were attached to this to direct. I mean, I wasn't directing yet. I had just written a movie called The Perfect World for Clint mm -hmm. Eastwood to direct. Mm -hmm. And, and he did direct. Uh, and so this was something that initially was um, a blind picture deal with Warner Brothers that um, with Steven Spielberg and myself. And uh, Steven was doing Schindler's List. And when I pitched this to him, he thought it was just too dark a place for him to go, just coming off Schindler's List. And uh, so I understood that uh, Warren Beatty was attached. Uh, Clint was attached for a brief moment and then he went off to do something else. Warren Beatty was attached for a couple of years, which led to a whole lot of really, really fascinating lunches and discussions, but no movie. Um, he's, he was lovely, but you know, he wasn't going to make the movie, it seemed. Um, uh -huh. There were other people involved. Danny DeVito for a very brief time, not well, not that brief, about a year or so. He was attached back when he was directing a lot, um, and it almost got made several times. And uh, then I started directing, and Mark Johnson, who is the producer of the movie and has always been the producer, would come every couple of years and ask me if if I you know wanted to do it to look at the little things again. <clears throat> and I had small children at the time and thought this is just too dark a place to live in for two years. Um, so I just kept going along and doing my other stuff. And then my kids went off to college and uh, Mark asked again. And I, uh, I went back and reread it and, and didn't hate it. Thought it was actually pretty good. <clears throat> I was, you know, you're always, you're always kind of afraid to go back and read something you wrote that long ago because you think it's going to be awful. <clears throat> but I had a great deal of encouragement from uh, Brian Helgeland and Scott Frank, uh, writer friends of mine who were all, who were very fond of the script and they encouraged me to, uh, to make it uh, along with Mark Johnson. So I uh, went to Warner brothers and, uh, here we are. You know, I'm, I'm not a screenwriter, but I'm a writer. And I know that if I put something, if I write something, put it in a drawer, leave it for a little while, two things will happen. One of two things will happen. One, I will go back and read it and go, what the hell was I thinking? Two, I will see all the mistakes, all the things that can be improved. Did you see anything like that? Did you experience anything like that at all when you when you picked this out again with the express intention of directing it? I <clears throat> I did, and before before I sent it to Warner Brothers, even though they owned it, nobody there had read it except for Courtney Valenti, an executive there, because it was that old. Everybody was had come to Warner Brothers since the, movie, the script had been written, <clears throat> and so I took about a week and a half. And went through, and one of the things I did was I took out a lot of the CSI kind of stuff, I'll call it, the crime, uh, the criminalists, the chronology and all that, that when I wrote it, wasn't on TV every week, but now it is, and it's part of our vernacular, and we know um, about lots and lots and lots of, uh, of things with in regard to a crime scene. So I, I called those out, and it was actually great because it wasn't, I didn't have to explain things, everybody kind of see something and understands what's going on in a crime scene. Plus, I think there was probably six or seven pages that I was able to remove just because I felt like sometimes I feel like when you're when you're writing 
uh, a script for somebody else to direct, you want to overwrite just a just a little bit so that uh, I, I call it leaving them breadcrumbs so that they know exactly what your intention is. And then, you know, mm -hmm. if it's too much, that can be that can be edited out later. <clears throat> sometimes it's dialogue. Sometimes it's just extra explanation. <clears throat> but when you're directing for yourself, you uh, you don't need to leave breadcrumbs. So, you know, some of that just it just kind of got tighter and tighter. And uh, and then I was happy with it and sent it sent it on to Warner Brothers. How did it how did we get to the point where you have three Oscar winners in, in this movie? It's 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 a it's a strange journey from there as, uh, as well. I mean, Warner Brothers, Courtney said, um, you know, give us a couple of weeks to read it. And said we own this outright. Yes, it's not based on any underlying material. No, it's just a story I made up. And you know, way back then, he didn't pay me a ton to write it, so there's not a lot of money against it. Um, Anyway, so she called back and she said, there's, you know, good news and bad news, and it's the same news. Everybody loves the script. Um, the reason I sent, sent it to her was I was thinking in the back of my head, I had just done a movie for Netflix, The Highwaymen, and uh, they wanted to do another one. And I thought, well, if Warner Brothers doesn't want to do it, and I understand it's kind of an adult drama that has more of a 70s feel to it, um, and it's not without expense and all that kind of stuff, and nobody's wearing spandex and flying around. So, you know, maybe they won't want to, won't want to do it. <clears throat> but I was in hopes of getting it in turnaround. And when they loved the script, it became obvious that they weren't going to let it go. Now, it didn't mean they were going to make it, I thought. And then the next thing you know, they're asking, who do you think should play Joe Deacon? And Mark Johnson and I thought about it for about a half a second and said, Denzel Washington. And they said, we love that idea. <laughs> and, uh, so I knew Denzel a little bit. I had done uh, some rewrite work on a couple of movies that he was in, Safe House um, and Magnificent Seven. And so we'd been in a room together. I'd spent a lot of time with him in South Africa when we were shooting Safe House. So we had been in a room together and we'd talked story and we're familiar with each other and liked one another. And so we sat down and uh, talked about it for about an hour. And he said, let's do this. So... I said, wow, okay, now this is happening quickly. Um, and Warner Brothers said, who would you like to go to for Jim Baxter? And Denzel and I talked about it, and and uh, Mark Johnson chimed in as well and said, gosh, Rami Malek would be really interesting with Denzel because it's not obvious. It's not like you'd see them hanging out at night together or watching sports or anything like that. <clears throat> so I thought it would be an interesting duo. And Senator Rami, Rami read the script and said, yes. I was like, wow, okay. And then we said, who are we going to get for Albert Sparma? And I'd, I'd known Jared a little bit because he had reached out to me after I did a movie, uh, directed a movie called The Founder with Michael Keaton. And he loved that movie. And mm. uh, so we sat down and talked. He just wanted to ask a bunch of questions about the movie. And so we sat down and talked and he said at the end of it, I'm kind of more into my music right now than anything. But if you have something, you know, you want to do, I'd love to do it with you. So I sent him uh, the script and said, it's not the lead, but it's a really great and important role, I think. <clears throat> and he read it and knew that Denzel and Rami were involved. And I'm sure that helped, you know, help push him along. But he said uh, he passed along an enthusiastic yes. And, you know, then all of a sudden, be careful what you wish for. I've got three very, very talented actors, all Oscar winners. 
and they're in. So it's my job to make sure it all gels and, and, it, and it comes out okay. There is a tremendous scene uh, in this movie where the three, your three powerhouse leads are in the same room for the, same, for the first time. What was it like directing the three of them? How do you approach? How do you, do you direct Denzel in a very, very different way from, from Jared Leto, for example? Um, yeah, every actor has a different process. So it's your job to kind of figure out how to set the table nicely for each of them. Uh, and that's, that's a lot easier when they're doing individual scenes apart from one another. But when you've got all three in a scene, um, you still have to, you can't just talk to all three of them at the same time. Um, and they have different processes. I mean, Denzel uh, had spent a lot of time in prep with me. I set an office uh, in our prep offices at Warner Brothers right next to mine, and we kept our doors open. And we talked ad nauseum about the scenes, uh, what he's wearing, why is he doing this? And so a lot of that was worked out in advance. And so he was, he was very prepared for it. And so it would just be the, the tiniest little hints or reminders of what we had talked about. Um, Rami loves, uh, a lot of direction, loves to talk, uh, you know, loves lots of takes. He just wants to get better and better and better. Uh, and he's great. Uh, Jared is someone that, you know, he's been called a method actor, but I guess every actor has their own method and it's your director's job to, to crack it. But, uh, you know, I would, yeah, I would talk to Jared in his, in his character name and it was usually at a whisper. And it would be very specific little notes. And he, you know, he jumped all over them. He loved them and would try anything. He was open to, to trying absolutely anything and everything. Um, but the scene you're talking about primarily, uh, I mean, half the scene is, is Jared and Rami across a table from one another until Denzel comes in. You're talking about the interrogation scene, right? <clears throat> and so it was funny because, uh, you know, Denzel said, he wasn't in the scene at the start and uh, he wasn't in the scene at the start. And so he was in the observation room watching and he said, that's where my character would be. I said, yes, you're in there watching. He goes, well, I'm going to sit right in there and watch then, even though I'm not on camera. I said, that's fine. That's great. And they started, we started feeling it out with the two of them. And it's very much the characters are feeling each other out too, you know, um, and they hadn't spent a lot of time together. I'm, I can't remember if it was the first time they were on screen together, perhaps. Um, and so it's two people feeling each other out. It's two characters feeling each other out and wending their way down a, down a road toward the story. And Denzel came to me at one point after a take, and he was so excited. He said, I'm watching, like, I feel like an old heavyweight watching two young heavyweights. And, and I, I, just, I just want some popcorn. He goes, man, this is great. He goes, these guys are throwing down. He, uh, he actually called his son, John David Washington, and said, he said, is it okay if John David comes out and watches? I said, absolutely. He didn't get to make it that day, but he was, Denzel was so excited that he wanted JD to come and just see these young guys throwing down. Um, and then he, you know, then he goes, now it's my turn. I get to jump in there. And he, he brought it in a big way. And the three of them in there, it was just, you knew there were going to be some pyrotechnics uh, and man, you, this, you, the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up with, with those guys in a room together. I just want to take you back a little bit to roughly 1993 when The Perfect World was just about to come out. And were you harboring ambitions of directing at that point? Talk me through the journey from writer to director in that time. 
Well, Clint Eastwood was, you know, whether he knows it or not, my mentor. I did two movies with Clint and he allowed me to be on the set and he wasn't really that fond of having writers on the set because they tend to slow things down and are precious about their words and things like that. But he allowed me to be on the set for A Perfect World and just watch and learn and ask questions. Um, I, I thought I did want to direct at some point, but I was very happy you know, writing. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't as though I was saying, I'll do this writing thing until I can direct. Um, I enjoyed both and still enjoyed both. There's some things that I'll take on and I'll go, I think this is something I'd like to write, but somebody else would do a better job directing it. Um, and, you know, and then obviously there, there, there are movies like <clears throat> The Rookie and um, The Founder and Saving Mr. Banks uh, that uh, others wrote and wrote so well that I wished I'd written them myself. <laughs> um, and, and that's, that's the first thing and I go, I wish I'd written this and yes, I want to direct it. Um, so I, you know, I can't remember exactly what, there was one little tiny movie that I did that was, uh, that was a, on purpose straight to video that was probably made for a hundred thousand dollars or something in the late eighties. Um, but then when the opportunity, Mark Johnson, also the producer of the little things was the producer of, um, the rookie and he was producing that script and they were looking for directors and he challenged me he said you've 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 shown that you can go into a room and uh sell yourself as a writer but you haven't had that opportunity yet as a director this would be good practice i don't think you're going to get the job because they're looking for someone who's directed before um but it would be good practice for you to go in and pitch yourself as a director for the rookie so I, I read this. I'd read the script and really liked the script a lot, and and uh, and I thought, well, that Mark's not wrong. I mean, that would be a good exercise. So I went in. I had nothing to lose. I'm not getting the job, and uh, you know, told them what film stock I would use. Uh, you know how they what really really worked about the script, what thematically I wanted to, you know, visually say. And we had about an hour long conversation at Disney. And I walked out and before I, uh, before I arrived home, uh, Mark had called me and said, you know, I hope you're serious about this because you just got the job. And if, after I left, I guess, Nina Jacobson, um, uh, who's had a production over there, uh, she said, well, he doesn't have the experience of the other directors we're meeting with, but it's pretty obvious he's the guy that we should hire. And, you know, so thank you, Nina. Uh, and it was, it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> I mean, that, that movie was just, it was, we were so, we were such a small movie and they had like Disney had Pearl Harbor to deal with and lots of other big, big movies that we went down to a little town in Texas and they forgot about us. So we just made our movie. I know you didn't direct it a perfect world, but you obviously have like Kevin Costner crime flick <laughs> bookend <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Uh, so you have the highwayman, you've got perfect world as well, but otherwise you have, you know, uh, epic Battles in the Alamo, you have The Blind Side, The Rookie, Saving Mr. Banks, The Founder, as you said, and now this really dark, really dark psychological thriller. Is that, is it, is it a modern day Howard Hawks vibe going on? Is that what you're, or, or do you just like to bounce around from genre to genre yourself in terms of the films you watch? I, yeah, I have, I have, I have varied taste in movies. I, I like all kinds of different movies. Hollywood is really, uh, excited to pigeonhole you. Um, it, once you do one thing and do it well, say like The Blind Side, or The Rookie, sports movies, then that's all you get offered. So I was very conscious, like after I did The Rookie and it was a success and well-received, et cetera, 
I swore I was never going to do another sports movie. But then I'm a big Michael Lewis fan. And uh, so when his book, The Blind Side, you know, came out, I said, well, I, I'm going to read it anyway, so I'll read it. And I came up with a, a specific take and it was like, oh, this is really good. I'll, I'll go pitch it and they'll say no and then I'll be done with it. It'll be great. Um, but they said yes. And so we made the movie. And instantly you get every single sports movie thrown your way. So I was always aware that you you wanted to mix it up. And it wasn't just so you could keep working. It was so that you wouldn't get bored because it is two years of your life and you're waking up at 4.30. And if you're doing it for something that feels like you've already done it, you know, then I, I don't think I would have the enthusiasm to do a, sufficient to do a good job on the movie. So yeah, I never mm -hmm. know. Saving Mr. Banks was one. Kelly Marcel, the you know, brilliant writer who's I just talked to the other day in London. Um, mm -hmm. She is, uh, she had written this script and it was well received here and, you know, was offered to me to come in and, and meet uh, as a potential director. And I said, oh, I'm not a big Mary Poppins fan and um, I'm really not the musical guy or anything like that. So I don't know that I would have, I would be the person for this. And Disney kept pushing and say, just, they said, just read it. If nothing else, you're going to love the script. Um, and then you just say no, and it's all good. I read the script and I thought, oh, you know what? This is really, really good. And I do think that I have, uh, I can, my voice can work for this. And I know how I would like to do this and I'll go tell them about it. So it's, it's, it's a great curveball to get thrown. You know, somebody, somebody thought outside the box, uh, you know, at Disney and Allison Owen, uh, the producer of the movie to say, yeah, let's get this guy from a refinery town in Texas to do, <laughs> to do Saving Mr. Banks. John Lee Hancock, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was John Lee Hancock. We'll be talking about the little things in just a tick because it is now time to talk about the reviews, the films that are available for you to watch on your Sofaplex this week. And there is really only one place to start. And that is, of course, with Sack Snyder's Justice League, which is out in it's all its four hour, 4.3 ratio glory on Sky Cinema and Now TV this week. And uh, we've talked about this an awful lot, you know, over the years, whether it existed, if it did exist, what sort of state it existed in. Then it was revealed that there was a cut, uh, but it needed some work. And so Zack Snyder's had Warner Brothers help him out a little bit. They've thrown a little bit of cash his way and, he, and the result is the four-hour cut of the movie that he left in early 2017 that Joss Whedon then took over and the resulting film, which was heavily, heavily Whedonized, was absolutely terrible. Benjamin, this four-hour version, what's different about it? Set it up for us. And is it an improvement on the 2017 vintage? It's interesting because on the one hand, this is pretty much more or less an all new movie and yet also in many ways familiar. So the general setup is post Batman v Superman, spoiler alert, Superman's dead. That leaves <gasps> Earth vulnerable what? to attack from Steppenwolf, who is this sort of lackey for Darkseid, this big interdimensional evil 
Steppenwolf is looking for the three mother boxes that will allow them to basically terraform the Earth for Darkseid's amusement, and Batman swiftly shits his pants, realising that <laughs> Superman was basically <laughs> the only can, person powerful Can, can I just say, that's not a scene in the film, by the way. Uh, <laughs> no, <that's- laughs> that one remains on the cutting room floor. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's like, are you sure you want Batfleck to shit himself? Yeah, are you sure? <laughs> but yeah, clearly Superman is the only person actually powerful enough to stop this from happening. So yeah. Batman decides to unite the various metahumans. He's trying to create his own little gang to take on Steppenwolf and maybe, just maybe, find a way for Superman to return. He wants to get his motor running, hit on the highway. Oh my God, this really could have done with like an 80s montage. That would have been great. Um <laughs> But you know what? It's I enjoyed this a lot, and I have I am not a huge fan of the Snyder films within the DCEU. I'm not a huge fan of his take on these characters, and yet I also didn't really like the Justice League that came out in the cinemas. But this one, for me, it really worked. I kind of admired its relentless dedication to being completely gargantuan from moment to moment for four solid hours. It's like purposefully huge the whole way in in sort of ambition, in execution, even in the size of the frame. Like, I was really sceptical about how the 4-3 framing, whether that would actually work. But do you know what? It really does. It gives you a sense of these sort of... His take on this whole universe has always been, like, these people are literally gods and we should tower... We should cower beneath their mighty power. And it gives you that sense, the way that he frames them in that Mm. ratio um, really works. And, yeah, it's it's... We have been so starved of anything this huge. I mean, I I think it's rare to see anything as huge as this come along anyway, but especially after the year we've just had. And it was kind of great to just sort of sit and uh, bask and indeed cower in the sort of might of this huge, stupendously massive four-hour superhero epic. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it's funny. So I, I thought there are two ways of, of reviewing this film. The one, let's be honest, more professional way would be to rewatch the Whedon cut and then rewatch this one and then watch this one, I should say, uh, to see where the changes were. I opted for the other route, which is to watch the unalloyed Snyder vision in all its glory. So I watched Man of Steel on Monday. I watched the ultimate edition of Batman versus Superman on Tuesday, which is a significant improvement on the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. And then I went straight mm-hmm. into the four-hour Snyder cuts. So that's two hours, three hours, and then four hours. And I have to say, it kind of works. Like, maybe it was just delirium after nine hours of this shit, but I genuinely, and I've been quite vocal in my dislike of all things DCEU, and in particular the Snyder films, but I actually think this worked as a kind of single ongoing narrative. Like it builds in Man of Steel, it segues nicely into Batman versus Superman, and a lot of the seeds for the Snyder Cut of this are set up in the Ultimate Edition of, of BVS. And I think all things considered, this at double the runtime of the theatrical version is a significantly better film. The fact that it's in 4.3 is inexplicable and deeply, deeply fucking irritating because none of us live in an IMAX cinema. We all have Not fucking yet. widescreen televisions. Mm. But let's just move on from that bit of irritation and say that one of the worst things of the theatrical cut of Justice League and let's be honest there were lots of them was Steppenwolf fundamentally doesn't work as a villain because he looks terrible he sounds terrible sorry Kieran Hines and he just is terrible now Zack Snyder rethought the whole aesthetic for that character in this. And let's be honest, he still looks utter shit. But he looks so much better than he did. Like, I don't understand this idea that sinister means wearing spiky metal clothes. That's just thoroughly impractical. Mm. And they breathe as well, which looks weird. But 
even though I don't like the look of the new Steppenwolf, I think they made a really good decision to make him look more alien, more intimidating, more imposing. Like his voice is now so distorted, you can't even tell it's Kieran Hines. Is it even still Kieran Hines? I it don't even know. Still Kieran Hines. Yeah, um, it yeah. But it's it sounds much more bestial and sort of alien, and he feels more threatening. And having now be the right hand of Darkseid, so there's like a bigger bad behind the big bad, again gives a real sense of threat and danger, which was completely absent to me in the theatrical cut. And I think the the final act of this, not to get into it, spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen it, is much, much cleaner. A lot of the, the Joss Whedon additions, I mean, they're all the way through the film, but there are a lot of additions to the final act which just don't work on any level. And the final confrontation between the Justice League and Steppenwolf just bored my absolute tits off originally. Whereas in this, I was like punching the air, like it really got me emotionally. I thought, this is great. When Superman comes in, it really works. And I think it's partly down to the fact that there's new musical cues in this, but also that whole fight sequence has been rethought and repaced. And much like the rest of the film, it just works this time. It feels coherent and it is still a mess. Like, let's not fuck about. This is still a bit of a mess, but it is a coherent mess. Whereas before it was just nonsense. Is, is that a thing? I still don't think that's a thing. I can't pretend that this, like, I, you know, not to invoke the mighty MCU, but this is no end game. But it works, you know, it, it, it works. And at the end of this, I thought, bar the epilogue to this, which I think is problematic because there's too much fan service and then Fucking he sets insane, like, he tries to do, is, he yeah. tries to do too many different things and none of it mm. works. And it just, it's, it asks too many questions. But bar that, I like this. I thought it was good. I very much disagree with you on the epilogue, but we'll talk about that in our spoiler special for this. I very, very much disagree with you on the epilogue. Oh, I think Hell's it's terrible. Hells. I cannot wait to hear what you said, what you, what you think about this movie. Yeah. What do you so think about this movie? So here's what I liked. I do think it's more coherent than the uh, than the theatrical cut. I do think that Steppenwolf is better. Um, I think that Cyborg comes out of it better. We haven't talked about mm. him, but he is he is given more to do. That said, I don't think he's given much to do. His his uh, emotional colours are still basically angry or sad. And uh, there isn't a lot of variation for him to work with. I think Ray Fisher is probably a very good actor and I don't think he gets to uh, strut his stuff even in this longer version. I think uh, Zack Snyder, having mentioned a four-hour assembly to the fans, felt obliged to somehow deliver that. And I think there is a better two and a half hour cut in here, which doesn't have so many fucking repetitions. There's one hero shot of them all assembled at one point, which we see from, I swear to God, at least three different <laughs> angles and it lasts at least 30 seconds. And none of the angles have a different, you know, impact. It doesn't add anything. It's mm. just that that was in the assembly cut and there, and that's what the fans said they want. So that's what they're fucking getting. Like there are so <laughs> many bits in this that a half competent editor would take out. And, they, and yet this is what people have asked for. And therefore this is what they're getting. I expected to see much less of what I'd already seen in the theatre. I'll be honest. There are all these talk of, of Joss Whedon having reshot 75% of it and this being a radically different take on even the scenes that we'd seen before. And a lot of the scenes we've seen before are kind of still here, maybe from mm. a different angle, maybe cut in a slightly different way, but mm. they're still there. Uh, this features just some blindly stupid storytelling decisions that I genuinely can't get past and I'm going to get into in the in the spoiler special but I mean there's there's a portrayal of terrorists at one point in this film that makes less than no sense to me I, I, I've rarely seen worse executed baddies and I've seen all the Fast and Furious films so I just <laughs> I, I, I genuinely think the people who've given this four and five stars are on something um, I don't know what but you know it seems like they're having fun that's great but snack I, cider snack cider that's what they're on <laughs> maybe they are <laughs> 
But look, I, I, I just, it's better than the theatrical. I will absolutely give you that. And I am very glad personally for Zack Snyder, having gone through such a horrible time that he has gotten to do this. And I hope mm-hmm. he is, he is happy with, with the results. But I, mm-hmm. you know, I would have liked to see his theatrical cut. That might have been interesting, but judging from yeah. what he did with Batman v Superman, he would have left important plot points out of that in favor of some slow mo. So maybe it wouldn't have worked. I don't know. That's what he did in BVS. That's why the Ultimate Edition is so much better, is because it actually has a plot that makes Wait, some kind it makes of sense. sense. And theatrically, it does make no sense. It gives, yes. it gives Clark Kent and Superman motivation. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's still bad, but it's better. And and you'll know, I've gotten through the whole way through that rant without at any point complaining about his portrayal of Superman, which still just does my tits in. So See, I have... <laughs> <laughs> See, I like dark, gritty Superman, but then of course I fucking would, wouldn't I? But sure like, no, would. I, I, I have no problem with that. And the fact that both Batman and Superman kill the shit out of a great number of people during these films. But, you know, the thing with this also is it sets up a sequel, which to be honest, we're probably never going to see. Oh no, uh, the know, unless... Restore the Snyderverse campaign has already begun, James. This well, nightmare it, I, will never I, end. I, for one, am hoping that we do get to see Steppenwolf to the street come to a cinema near you <laughs> quite soon. But uh, assuming that doesn't happen, and that this isn't even considered canon at this point, isn't it? They're still, I mean, maybe that'll get Who retconned knows? as well. But for me, this is, you know, this is the Justice League that people deserved and i mean that in many ways but this is this is the justice league we should have got to begin with maybe not a four-hour cut you're not wrong i do think mm. you could probably have lost some of the slow-mo and some of the angles if the whole film had been shot in normal speed it probably would be two hours long there's there's a point where somebody comes to see alfred and you see three <laughs> different establishing shots of alfred in a room before that person like why there's also an elongated shot of pouring tea but nevertheless there's a rescue and- <laughs> moment for a hot dog I also just like true. what are the five star people thinking and a woman sings at the sea for a full 40 oh seconds oh my god oh don't even <laughs> get started all of these things aside all of these things aside I am I am a convert to the Snyder Cut like, and I have been railing against this whole initiative for fucking years now and actually I'm glad this thing exists I'm glad I saw it and I'm really glad I did the nine hour binge because I now do not feel like a DC hater even though I still think Ben should be hung, drawn, and quartered for his four-star review I, of Wonder Woman I'm still glad that I saw it. It's an interesting film artifact. And I, like I say, I'm personally glad for Zack Snyder that he got some kind of peace uh, professionally out of this. Mm. So that's all good. For me, it's easily the most entertaining of the Snyder DCEU stuff. Like, I hated the completely grim downness of Batman v Superman. And I think these slightly, the, the insanely high stakes of this lend itself to that slightly gritty feel, but it's also a bit more hopeful and a bit brighter, which I responded to in a much Mm. better way than BVS. My main issue still with this is that I just don't believe in these incarnations of these characters. Mm. I don't look at Ben Affleck, as decent as he is in these, and go, that's Bruce Wayne. I look at him and go, that's Ben Affleck in a Batman suit. Same with Ezra Miller. I just don't have any connection to his version of The Flash. But you must so have I, connection to Gal Gadot, right? You must have connection but to... But that's the thing. Like She's the only one, pretty much. Right. And I, I cavil a bit, and I do like Jason Momoa. I prefer the Momoa in um, Aquaman than in this. Mm. I think yeah, here he's a bit different. personality-less. Yeah. Oh, most important thing, we still get Aquaman going, my man, in the final <laughs> reel. So. I, a lot of the humour that they the fans complained about turns out not to have been Joss Whedon after all so it, it is interesting how much of the film is in the whedon cut however it's pretty much all the action sequences because he must have just looked at the that and gone, yeah i can't do better than that and that's but fair. it's interesting how they redid large chunks of the last action sequences using the same footage yes the finale is much better 
the tone of this movie is completely different. Yeah. And I don't think actually, there actually is that much crossover in the, in the humor uh, of the film. But um, but yeah, my man is still in there. But there's a couple mm. other bits that, that aren't. But there's a lot of stuff that isn't in the Whedon Cut that is in this movie. I have to say, I liked it. I, I, was, I was on board with it. I think the first five hours is terrific. It tails off a little bit towards the end. <laughs> no, the first, I think the first 40 minutes, I was thinking, oh, this is actually really really good and it does tail off a little bit it has no earthly business or unearthly business or kryptonian business being anywhere near four hours long mm. having said that a big chunk of that is taken up with the epilogue you know not to give too many spoilers away but i'm pretty sure you all know by now there is an epilogue and the epilogue has a lot of interesting stuff in it i really liked and i'll be butting heads with jimbo about that mm. on the spoiler special uh, when we talk about it uh, in due course, uh, but there's a lot to admire here, and I, I, I said once this project was announced, my stance on it was fairly consistent, which is, you know, I didn't think we were going to see a finished film. I thought, you know, um, this there's still bits and pieces here where you think, okay, he didn't quite have that, or he didn't quite have the, some of the special effects, new special effects don't quite hold up, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I thought it would be more of a curio in the way that the Donner cut of Superman 2 is a curio where he's literally mm. had to go to screen tests footage or, you know, some films you maybe see where they drop in even animated sequences because they didn't shoot the footage. This is by and large uh, a finished movie. So it's not that cinematic curio slash artifact that I thought it would be. And what remains is actually, I think, pretty darn good. For me, it is the best Zack Snyder DC EU movie and is immensely satisfying in many many ways interesting and problematic in other ways far too long uh, I would say as well but a lot of the stuff it restores vis-a-vis um, Ezra Miller Ray, Ray Fisher is good some of the decisions it makes vis-a-vis Clark and Bruce and Diana less good but hey we'll have an epic 10 hour spoiler special to get into that at some point. So we gave it as a magazine three stars. Three stars then for Zack Snyder's Justice League. I haven't done the full nine hour version yet, but <laughs> maybe I will at the weekend. Who knows? Next up, it's available on PVOD. You've already heard from the film's director. It is The Little Things, starring Zack Snyder's Justice League star Jared Leto, Denzel Washington, and Rami Malik. And this is, a, as we talked about in last week's show, a bit of an old fashioned cop thriller. Um, shades of Seven, but weirdly enough, it was written. Before seven, Hell's Bells. Yeah, so Denzel Washington is a sheriff's deputy, uh, Deke, uh, a former LA detective who comes to the city for a very simple administrative task. He's just supposed to pick up some evidence. And instead, he kind of gets sucked into or, or inserts himself, maybe more accurately, into a, a a case, a, a killer case, along with Detective um, Jim Baxter, who's played by Rami Malek. And he, he starts to suspect that it's connected to an old thing that he did. And the two of them kind of pair up looking for a serial killer and quickly become fixated on the unbelievably creepy, like I cannot stress enough how creepy he is, Albert Sparma, who's played by Jared Leto. And they, uh, yeah, essentially are trying, it's not so much a, a whodunit for most of its runtime as a how do we prove it kind of thing. So it's basically the two of them trying to get this guy in the room to admit it, trying to get the evidence that they need and trying to build a case against the man they suspect of being a serial killer. So it's 
relentlessly dark, both physically and uh, you know metaphorically. Uh, it's mm-hmm. mostly mostly takes place at night. Yes, but and it does just. I can't explain why, but it does just feel very very nineties. It feels very much of a piece with you know the Bone Collector or or Seven mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. all of those films. Um, and even though it has some clever kind of you know little twists of storytelling i i just felt like it's been sitting around for 30 years and and you know john lee hancock originally wrote it when he was just a screenwriter he hadn't turned director yet and it's had great great people attached to it over the time and you can see why and you can see why it attracted sort of three oscar winners to star in it but equally you can see why it never quite got up across the starting line because you know i feel like we have moved on and this does feel a little bit tired and it does feel a little bit predictable in most of its twists and turns. So uh, yeah, I, I was I was underwhelmed and it left me a little bit colder than I had hoped seeing that cast and that director on the way in. Interesting. See, I liked it precisely because of that. I liked it because it felt like a movie that we hadn't, that, you know, it, yeah, it's a movie that if it had been released post seven, you would have gone, oh, it's another one of these movies that have come out in the wake of Seven. But yeah. because there's been a 20-year gap, it was like, oh, well, they don't make movies like this anymore. This is really refreshing. So That's I, what I, I was feeling at first. But yeah. then it just kind of, I, that that feeling had gone by the end of the movie. I don't know. Mm. No, I had I had the same thing. Because it's not really a whodunit. You kind of think you know whodunit. Uh, it's, it's more about sort of prizing out the details of what happened to Denzel Washington's character where he no longer works where he worked and his backstory. And that's kind of the interesting thread that runs through this. The actual main story, I don't think, isn't as haunting as it thinks it is. And it, it, I thought it was pretty bland. Um, I thought Washington was very, very good. I thought Jared Leto was very upsetting. Um, but ultimately, I just found this quite a miserable film that took forever to get anywhere and then didn't go anywhere exciting when it kind of did. Uh, and it just felt <laughs> a little bit regressive to me. I thought, you know, cinema's come a long way since these kind of films and if this had come out in the early 90s it wouldn't have been one of the better examples then either uh give me the bone collector any day <laughs> <laughs> two stars just wait for the four hour uh, hancock cut <laughs> yes. of this two stars then for the little things next up we have infinitum infinitum colon Dawn of Sh- no colon subject <laughs> unknown is actually this. This is a really interesting little film actually because this one was shot during the first lockdown, uh, and it is it is pretty much a two person gig. The whole thing it's shot by uh, Matthew Butler Hart, who directs it and co writes it, uh, and it stars his wife Tori Butler Hart, also co writes it, uh, and the whole thing was shot on an iPhone. Uh, and then sent off uh, post-production at the end of each day. So it was done in proper sort of like lockdown uh, conditions. But it, it kind of embodies the feel of lockdown, and not in the way that so many of these things where they're actually depicting COVID does, but in that this kind of embodies the hell of isolation and paranoia and not being able to talk to anyone. Like this was a metaphor for my whole lockdown experience. Uh, and I actually think it's really, really well done, especially given the limitations that they've done it under. So Toy plays uh, Jane, and she wakes up, strapped to a chair or tied to a chair in an attic doesn't know why she's there and tries to free herself and find a way out but as she gets closer to finding her way out she has a sort of groundhog day effect where she then wakes up back in the chair but each time she does it she seems to get a little bit further and a little bit further things are changing there's no one around she can't see anyone she can't speak to anyone 
And it's unclear whether she's still in our reality or she's somehow been transplanted to another world, mm. another dimension. And then as the kind of mystery unfolds, she sort of finds her way to an institute. There's an experiment. Conleth Hill appears in this film uh, with a slightly upsetting American accent, but he's uh, he's kind of the mad scientist behind all of this. And Ian McKellen, who is kind oh, of, yes. in many ways, top build for this, but is barely in it. He's in some sort of footage as a talking head. Um, but again, gives it a little bit of interesting variety there. Yeah, I think the the two of them are really there to let you know that there's something odd going yes, on beyond exactly her. that. To yeah. let you know that there's something more going on there. Now, this is super, super, super low budget. Like I say, shot on an iPhone, really, really low-fi. But despite that, I, I really liked it. Like I, It is proper baffling early on. Like I found it quite hard to follow at first. I was like, I'm not sure this makes any sense at all. But it does start to fall into place as it starts to become clear. Uh, and when they move out of the city, and there's some lovely shots of her sort of work, walking alone and driving alone through deserted London, which I imagine is an awful lot easier during lockdown. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's good. The line, what the fuck, turns up quite regularly, and I'm just sharing that sentiment. But, uh, but yeah, it's nice. All forced isolation, confusion, paranoia, all that good stuff. Yeah. I um, my understanding is they they this this is kind of they've got some attention from Apple from this. So I think they're going to be doing some stuff for Apple oh, cool. after this. I will end this with one fact, and it is this: Did you ever watch Ultraviolet, the Joe Ahern show from the late nineties about vampires that had Idris Elba in it? Well, director Matthew <laughs> Butler Hart played the little vampire boy in that show, and that has blown my fucking mind. Wow. Okay. There we go. Well, uh, I would yeah, I would simply add. I think it it does very clever things with the budget. I think I've mm. something the same problem with James as uh, James uh, in this case, which is. There were times when I wanted a, just a, just a fraction more explanation than we were getting. I get that it's a kind of it's a mystery box film. It's not one that's going to over-explain things ever. Yeah. But I would have liked, especially towards the end, a little mm. bit more clarity um, uh, for those of us who are not, you know, gifted in our nuclear physics. So, uh, yeah. But I but I thought, I mean, given the resources, uh, I thought they they mm. were really really clever filmmakers, and and I'm really really impressed mm. with what they did. What do you know about quantum physics? Uh, just enough to make conversation at party. <laughs> Three stars in for infinitum. And on that bombshell, that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by Kate Winslet, Ooh. star of Ammonite, and Eddie Izzard, star and writer of Six Minutes to Midnight, and maybe someone else as well. We are jam-packed with guests over the next few weeks, folks. Jam-packed. But anyway, until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Squadcast name. <laughs> you might see a theme this week. Step Ben Wolf, Ben Travis. Release the mother box. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> It is goodbye from, oh my God, he's plugged himself into something again. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, release the widescreen cut, James Dyer. You don't know the power of the dark side. <laughs> it is goodbye from James McAvoy's stiff peaks. My word. Helen O'Hara. Look, I just like meringue. Bye. <laughs> Not even a toodaloo. That's how much James McAvoy's stiff peaks have affected her. I haven't seen Bake Off this week, so I may watch that now because it is goodbye for me. I'm off to crack open a can of Sack Snyder's Snack Cider and sit down and get to grips with James McAvoy's stiff peaks. Oh my, my. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.